Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Plane Crazy Down Under is proudly brought to you by Oz Runways, Australia's number one electronic flight bag. Now with support for New Zealand, Africa and Asia Pacific. Get a free one-month trial today at ozrunways.com and buy 50 Tales of Flight by Owens Up. Now available in ebook and in paperback at amazon.com and at owensup.com.au. Well, g'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode number 121 of Australia's Aviation Show. I'm Steve Vischer and joining me as always, the well-travelled, briefly tanned and now peeling Grant McCarran. Mate, uh, geez, where have you been? You look like you've been on a holiday. What's going on? <laughs> oh, mate, I wish. Um, I managed to uh, get out and away from the uh, desk that my day job has had me chained to for the last few months. Um, in July, I did actually go up to Mildura and do some hot air balloon flying and then we did the uh, quick runs on behalf of Airbus. They contracted us to go to Sydney and then to Perth to shoot video of the uh, A350 arrival in Australia. And then uh, not long after that, in fact, the very next day after returning from a day trip to Perth, I was on the plane to Darwin. Jeez, uh, the tough life of an aviation podcaster, mate. And all that time I sat here doing nothing, but then, you know, that won't matter. In a few days when I'm heading off overseas, I suppose. Yeah, pot. Hello, kettle. This is the pot calling. Something about, uh, yeah, you know, who's flying where? Yeah, that's right. In fact, um, we might talk about that a bit later. I'm heading off on an A380. I'm very excited about that. I've never been on one. Yeah, viva Oz Vegas. I'll tell you what, after about 15 hours, I think I might be over the A380 (laughs) experience just uh, briefly, but we'll talk a bit about that uh, a bit later on. Mate, uh, so uh, Pitch Black, let's talk about that. Um, Now, um, obviously, uh, a huge exercise for the Royal Australian Air Force and partners nations that come over and uh, you know once again uh, we want to thank our contacts there at the Royal Australian Air Force for uh, allowing us to come up there and uh, shoot some video and uh, obviously uh, Grant uh, you've obviously recorded a stack of uh, really cool interviews. Oh mate it was an incredible few days up in Darwin and uh Major thanks, of course, go to uh, Eamon Hamilton, who uh, helped put together some uh, flights uh, from Darwin Air Base to Tyndall on a couple of days and some access that uh, we just wouldn't have got otherwise. He uh, really went above and beyond and really helped out uh, making that all happen. So major, major thanks to Eamon uh, because, yeah, he was pulling his own hair out a couple of times about organising things and things falling through. But Like he uh, pulled that moustache off while he was at it. What's the go with that, Eamon? Gee whiz. Uh, that's a deployment stash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a thing he does is whenever he's deployed somewhere, he grows one, go figure. But, uh, and also, of course, um, thanks to um, Catherine Friend, aka Twinkie, who uh, once again helped out with some access to uh, her groups and uh, got us some of the interviews there. So, uh, a very intense few days. Uh, arrived in Darwin, basically, the, uh, went up there the day after I arrived back from Perth and I had a wicked flu. I arrived and a few of the guys were like, gee, Grant, you look worse than you, we thought you would for so much travel. (laughs) I looked really bad. I could barely talk. My voice had pretty much gone, but I had a very good night's sleep on a whole lot of uh, flu medicine and uh, was pretty much right within a couple of days. Now, uh, you uh, obviously spent time in Darwin. You went out, uh, obviously uh, got a couple of nice rides in the uh, RAF King Airs. Yep, my first ever RAF ride. Yay! Oh, there you go. <laughs> you know, Grant, that reminds me of that. Uh, no, no, we won't go on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The KC-30. Oh, and the C-130. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> no, it was awesome. My, my first ever RAF ride, and it, it's a King Air, and uh, it was a lot of fun. We were on uh, Dingo Airlines, uh, which uh, the Dingo call sign for uh, the uh, the RAF King Airs. 
Mate, um, now obviously uh, the Australians and the Americans always come over for pitch black. Who else was there? In fact, uh, did I notice some rather rare aircraft types up there in terms of fighter jets? Oh, you certainly did. Uh, we had the Royal Thai Air Force were there and they bought their Saab Gripens. Mate, an amazing little pocket rocket of an aircraft. Uh, I scored a pretty good uh, interview with uh, Wing Commander Nutavut, a.k.a. Titan, uh, because many people, as he says, can't really say his name of uh, Nadavut uh, Dwang Sunanen, <laughs> which I just probably butchered there, but uh, yeah, aka Titan. And uh, yeah, they went from the F-16s to the uh, Grippens, and he said it was like going from a Nokia to an iPhone, and it wasn't just because they played Angry Birds on board. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, there are much later block versions of the F-16 they could get that are far more modern, but uh, interesting they've gone with, uh, with the Saab option this time, and uh, obviously something that they've decided uh, suits their operational profile a bit better. Of course, mate, it wasn't just the uh, ties with the Saabs there. We had, uh, of course, yeah, as you mentioned before, the uh, US Air National Guard. They were there with their F-16s, and a uh, bit of a nod to Australia. Um, they had aircraft from two different... Different groups. One group had the tail code Alpha Charlie as an AC, and the other group uh, that they were operating had the tail code Delta Charlie. So ACDC, AC, bit of a nod to the Aussie rockers. Yeah, how awesome was that? And yeah. who else? Who else did we have there on this uh, this exercise? Yeah, we uh, also had the Singaporeans there. They had their F-15s and F-16s. They also had a KC-135 and a uh, Gulfstream, very heavily modified airborne early warning and so on. A couple of uh, side-mounted uh, radar bulges on the fuselage and a yeah, very, very interesting look. Uh, thanks to the Singaporeans, they let us uh, do a walk around their tarmac just at dusk. So I uh, got some fantastic photos of the aircraft in that perfect light, including one spectacular one of uh, the sunlight through the canopies of uh, a couple of F-15s. That was, uh, I was pretty happy with that one, given I was using a uh, relatively cheap little um, basic camera, not the huge um, look my lens is bigger than my forearm ones that ever, all the other guys had. Yeah, well, you know, you've got to be careful. Andrew McLaughlin uh, was picking on me recently for taking photos with my iPad, calling it Pro Gear. But, you know, hey, <laughs> I like the photo anyway. Yeah, well, it got some good stuff. We also, of course, had the French there. Uh, they had sent in a uh, CN-235 uh, light transport aircraft. Uh, that was the aircraft that was going up against the C-27J for Australia to choose. Uh, they bought that one in from um, the Pacific and uh, we're having a, a lot of fun uh, operating there, so got a bit of an interview with them. Also had a chat with the civilian uh, CHC-operated search and rescue helicopters. Spoke to one of the base managers there. And, of course, there was uh, also the uh, United Arab Emirates. They turned up with uh, some Mirages and also a uh, Airbus uh, multi-role tanker transport. Well, I guess also, Grant, you had a tour of the E7A Wedgetail, the Air Force mm. One, and uh, obviously no uh, recording devices of any kind allowed in there. No, no, uh, no audio, visual or anything, phones, cameras. Cameras, audio recorders, the whole works had to be uh, left behind. But absolutely fantastic to go on board that aircraft. And right down the back of the cabin, which is pretty much over the top, the the cabin ends pretty much over the top of the front wing route. Uh, so just back behind the leading edge, uh, there's a big door which says, you know, do not go through in flight and all that because that's when they crank up all the gear. But there's a couple of uh, sets of very nice leather chairs, very military. And the uh, E-7 has actually carried uh, not just the Chief of Air Force or the uh, Chief of the Defence Force. It's also carried the Prime Minister a couple of times. Now, also, you had to talk to uh, someone by the name of Nobby about his F4U restoration. Uh, yes, he was uh, working on Graham Hosking's F4U up in Darwin. Graham's actually based down here in Tyab, so it's highly likely that later this year that F4U will be heard blasting its way in and out of uh, Tyab. Very sexy aircraft. Fantastic. Well, that's all coming up in the first half of the show. Then we'll have a quick break. And then uh, coming up on the other side of that, ATC Ben uh, drops in to help me interview uh, Ryan Campbell. 
Ryan Campbell, a rather busy young fella, and just to see what he's up to, he's also released a book recently, so we have a bit of a chat with him about that. A very mature young man. I tell you what, every time I talk to Ryan Campbell, I often think, is this kid only 20 or 21, or is he perhaps a little bit older? But <laughs> he's up to some really interesting things and got some great ideas, so we'll have a bit of a talk to him about that a bit later on. But Grant, enough about what's going on. Let's do it. Yay! For Exercise Pitch Black 2014 in Darwin, I joined up with Andrew McLaughlin, a freelance aviation reporter and photographer who's been on the show a few times, Nigel Pittaway, another freelance uh, reporter, journalist and uh, photographer you quite often will find with Australian Defence Magazine, Mike Yeo, another person who's been on the show before, and you'll find him at thebaseleg.com, and Eng Tiong Ao from alert5.com. The five of us were escorted by Eamon Hamilton on our runs around the RAAF bases in Tyndall and Darwin. Thanks to the access that Eamon was able to organise for us, we were able to arrange lots of great photos, record some really interesting interviews, and uh, generally have a lot of fun. So we'll start the coverage of Exercise Pitch Black 2014 with a general media doorstop interview provided by Group Captain Mika Gray, who was the commanding officer for the event. Now this interview does jump around a lot, there were questions coming from all over the place, there was some background noise and wind, but I've put it together, it does jump around a little, but it gives you a really good overview of Exercise Pitch Black. Pitch black is a uh, air combat exercise, predominantly air to air and air to ground, and there is a small component of air land with um, resupply and a small ground uh, scenario. But predominantly, it's a air control exercise where the blue forces, predominantly out of Darwin, uh, are trying to attack targets down in the Delamere, Bradshaw areas of the Northern Territory, and they're defended by the red forces, which are predominantly operating out of Tyndall Air Force Base. In the exercise, we have about 40 aircraft from uh, Darwin and about 40 combat aircraft from Tyndall, and, uh, and they meet in the middle and, uh, and hone their skills. So it's very much a training activity for large-scale air combat. So at Darwin, for Pitch Black, we have um, Australian uh, Classic Hornets and Super Hornets. Uh, we also have uh, the UAE with their Mirages. We have the Ties with their Rippons, and, the, uh, and we have the um, tanker aircraft from here. Down in Tyndall, there's Australian Hornets and uh, US uh, F-16s. How many, sorry, the US? Uh, US have 12 F-16s here, based, based in Tyndall. And that's all of their aircraft? That are here, yeah, they do have um, some uh, support aircraft as well. Uh, we also have B-52s operating out of Guam, uh, flying missions from Guam down to the training ranges and then back to Guam. So they're coordinating for the missions, um, but they're not... Um, they're not landing in, in Darwin or Tyndall. Uh, so the Darwin aircraft, just to clarify that, so the Darwin aircraft are the Thai Griffins, the Australian Classic Hornets, Super Hornets, the Singaporean F-15s and F-16s, and uh, the tanker and support aircraft. So in terms of the, the scenario, it's, um, it's really those forces meeting in that, in that tactical training area. And, of course, when you put 40 to 80 aircraft together, there's a large amount of planning and coordination that goes into that. That's a large part of the exercise, so pretty well the day before, the mission commander who's assigned control of all those assets uh, gets given a scenario, a task from the operational commanders, and then he has to plan and execute that with all those forces so we safely and effectively uh, conduct the mission and get the best training out of it. What separates this Pitch Black from the, the others that have gone before it? Pitch Black is always, uh, we're always uh, looking to improve it. The new, uh, the new players in the exercise uh, is great with the different aircraft, so we're fighting against, fighting with and against aircraft that and the Mirages. Uh, the other thing, we've improved the debriefing facilities. Uh, so each mission, we're able to reconstruct the whole uh, scenario using 
tracking pods that the aircraft carry can then be displayed on a large auditorium where we replay the whole mission and see who shot who, what were valid shots, what were the training lessons, uh, and you know, that's, a, that's an excellent training tool. So you can replay that in real time, slow time, and uh, the, uh, get the maximum value out of it. Aviators around the world are aviators. You know, we have a common aim and we understand it's a, it's a great common language and a great common thinking. You know, and the partners that we're working with here, who we don't necessarily work with, it's really pleasing how well we fit in together. That interoperability, as we call it, is key to not only understand what we're going to do in the air, but the way we plan, the way we brief, the way our aircraft work, what our support needs are. And then there's also a great personal aspect of that. You know, you, you re-meet people that you've met and worked with before. You know, our Chief of Air Force is catching up with senior chiefs that he trained with many years ago in exercises such as this. So it's a really enduring thing that uh, builds those bonds between countries. The highlight has been the range of new aircraft that have never been here before, yes. uh, especially the Thais with their Gripen aircraft, first time they have deployed, and UAE uh, with their Mirage, the first time in Australia. So the equivalent exercise for us is exercise Red Flag, which is the American exercise in, uh, in the Nevada desert. Uh, which we go to, and uh, you know that's a great exercise. It's um, you know it runs numerous times throughout the year with a permanent staff and a permanent um, headquarters and training uh, units that run that exercise. Their airspace though is not as big as ours, so they are pleasantly surprised when they come to Australia. We have very few limitations on where we can fly the Northern Territory. That's not to say there aren't there aren't limitations. We work very hard to work in with the uh, the farmers, the heli mustering, uh, the people that rely on commercial and even private you know aircraft to move around the expanses of Australia. So we work that in, but and the airlines, of course, in and out of Darwin and the air routes you know over the top. But it is a big airspace, and it's you know great training value when you're up there. And you can put 80 aircraft into an area that's uh, about 60,000 square kilometres of airspace we use. The things we've done well this time is bringing more people in earlier into the exercise. So all the enabling, uh, the mission scenarios, the setting up the, uh, the debriefing facilities and the, um, uh, the IT connections between all the participants um, is quite good this year and we'll look to improve that again next year. Australia doesn't run this as a permanent exercise. We compare it to the US red flag. They run that you know, as a, with a permanent staff. So we model ourselves on that, but we're always, you know, um, looking to do the best with what we have for what is effectively, uh, you know, once every two year exercise. Pitch Black will always always, uh, be an air control exercise predominantly. Over the years, we've incorporated varying degrees of air to land and air to land integration based on experiences on operations around the world. But it's really, while that may be an enduring feature of warfare, it's really us maintaining our high-end air combat skills. So if we're ever called upon in that sort of high-end scenario, when you have multiple aircraft where you're defending or you need to go on the offence, we can do that. The numbers of aircraft participating this year is about the max capacity of both the bases, uh, both Tyndall and Darwin. We're also very conscious of the noise effect and the impact on the community. There's great positive impacts on Darwin, um, certainly in a commercial sense, and the overwhelming public support from the people that like it here. But we fully acknowledge that there's a, uh, there is a noise impact on the residents, and understandably so. Uh, so we work around that as much as we can, and that probably drives, you know, the exercise won't get any bigger because we literally can't park the aircraft here We've got about the right numbers of aircraft to get that high-end training and also balance that with uh, you know, the best compromise for the impact on Darwin in particular. Pitch Black is really attacking aircraft with their escorting fighters getting into targets and dropping air-to-ground uh, weapons, both simulated and live weapons, down on Delamere range. Uh, so for today's mission was um, probably about a dozen aircraft carrying live or simulated uh, bombs um, with sweep and escort fighters to 
get rid of the defending fighters, clean up that airspace so that the air-to-ground bombers can work uh, without hindrance in that. The beauty of the exercise is the, the red air, the defending guys, if we shoot them, and that's all controlled of what's a valid shot and what's not, they're able to regenerate after a couple of minutes. So you can effectively double the number of defenders by, uh, by them regenerating in that same mission. So the, uh, the invitation list for Pitchback goes out to a range of countries and then everyone looks at their schedule of who's able to participate with their own uh, domestic training schedules and then um, who's, uh, how many we can, we can fit in. So uh, invite the numbers of people that, with the expected responses, you know, with a lot of coordination of who's likely to attend. Uh, China is actually here uh, next week as, of a, uh, as part of the International Planning Group, Observers Group. They don't have aircraft or um, participants in the aircraft per se, but it's all part of Australia's, you know, uh, open policy of that transparency of showing people what we do, showing people our capabilities, you know, our good intent and uh, letting them see that and building up those relationships with all those countries. Now, to control a lot of aircraft, you need some pretty good controllers both on the ground and in the air. So to start things off, I managed to get some time with members of number 114 Mobile Control and Reporting Unit from the RAF. These are the folks who provide combat intercept and uh, air control for the RAF and the various forces who were there. We then also spent some time with the crew from the E-7A Wedgetail, which included a chance to go on board. Very exciting time. Flight Lieutenant Ben Daly of uh, SACTU, I'm uh, Air Combat Officer of uh, the Royal Australian Air Force. How'd you get into the Air Force? What made you think, oh, let's go and play with aircraft? Uh, ever since I was a little kid, so probably four or five, seeing some of the movies and uh, some of the opportunities out there, uh, and joined the uh, Air Force when I was 19, so back in 2004, and uh, joined up as a uh, navigator, had a career prior to being a uh, ACO, and uh, transferred over to ACO in 2008. So I applied my trade for a couple of years and I was lucky enough to be uh, selected for a FCC course, Fighter Combat Controller course in 2013. So you said you'd be navigator. Yep. Uh, what kind of uh, aircraft were you navigator on? So I qualified on the uh, King Air at uh, School of Air Navigation or School of Air Warfare it's called now and uh, on the C-130. From there it was on to being selected for FCC? No, after uh, C-130 had to uh, new career path, so Air Combat Officer, they all joined them up and uh, completed the... Uh, fighter control basic course in uh, June 2008 and was posted to the crew for four and a half years prior to uh, fighter combat controller course. So what did the ACO course and, and tasks involve? Uh, literally uh, learn how to speak on a radio so uh, the F-18s uh, both Alpha Foxtrot international fighters would understand what we're saying and also get a basic understanding of tactics and uh, things involved in everyday life to make sure training and operations are smooth from an air combat perspective and after that what wound up happening? Uh, after basic course? Yeah. After basic course, three months later, I was deployed to uh, the CAOC as a watchkeeper uh, for about four, four and a half months over there. That was enjoyable. Uh, and then came back and started the progress up to get ready for uh, FCC course. So that, that training can take upwards of nearly three to four years if you're lucky enough to be selected for that course. Basically, as an ACO, you're working sort of like a, a, uh, almost like an air traffic controller directing uh, the aircraft, things like that? Uh, probably in layman's terms, yeah, with a uh, heavy focus on tactics and the communications. So maybe not the same basket, but uh, same basic understanding and mental arithmetic. Yep. And so then you level up to be an FCC. What's involved in um, 
being selected and uh, how do you feel with that one? Uh, being selected, so uh, when the course was selected in uh, June, sorry, January 2012, one year out prior to course, I was selected as the first reserve, so was a little bit disappointed at the time, but was uh, quite happy to even be in, uh, in the, uh, the box to be selected for that. Then in June 2012, I was actually selected for the course and then the training began, so Pitch Black 12 was my work up to make sure I was ready and the pre-qualifications for course, so I had the aptitude to hopefully pass. So as an FCC, what's that uh, role involved? What is it that you're doing? The best way I can describe it in uh, 50 words or less is pulling uh, sensors, weapons, platforms and a bunch of information together, giving it a final solution to make sure the platforms can give an effect on a desired target. And so you're here at Pitch Black applying yep. all that you've learned in that area. Yep. So talk me through like what, what you're doing for a mission. Uh, for a mission, so uh, for today will be a good example is uh, we'll start at 1500 with a mission brief at 1600 but yesterday we were planning for the mission for today so that can involve anywhere between three to nine hours of preparation to make sure biggest biggest fact is that we're conducting it safely we're getting all the training for both ourselves and international partners and uh, being ready for today's exercise so after the briefing at 1600 where the mission commander the uh, the person in charge of the whole package of uh, up to 100 aircraft and various uh, components being c2 intel understand the game plan and then we go ahead and executed probably at about uh, 7 8 o'clock tonight for about two hours and then uh, we'll kick the debrief off at about midnight and see what we did well what we didn't do so well and how do we make it better for friday's mission this time in pitch black we've got some pretty uh, advanced tracking pods and things like that on the aircraft yep. how are you finding all that data uh, for myself, I've had experience previous to it, so it's not uh, so new to me, but to uh, some of my junior dudes, uh, it's overwhelming information and it's another tool that we can utilise for training to uh, effectively make ourselves better, so it's really helpful. It's not just he said, she said anymore out there, you know, getting, what they're doing. getting the truth data and uh, making sure the alibis are solid instead <laughs> of uh, just throwing it away. <laughs> now that you've uh, gone through the course, you're now applying yourself with Pitch Black, Yep. where do you see things going? Uh, I've been lucky enough to be selected for Red Flag next year, so that's the big international uh, air combat exercise over in uh, Las Vegas. Uh, nice place over there. So, uh, again, this apply my trade on an international stage, which will be great, and uh, the options are endless after that. So uh, either flight commander, FCC of one of the units, or uh, options are endless. So that's good. Anything else you'd like to say about the gig? I wouldn't change anything in the world for it. Uh, I'm Flying Officer Catherine Kozlovich. I'm an Air Combat Officer at 114M Crew in Darwin. Now, we've just heard from Ben about uh, what it's like to, uh, to do basic ACO kind of work, but can you give us a little bit more detail of uh, what you do day-to-day as an ACO? Um, so primarily being at 114M Crew, because we're the mobile unit, we spend quite a bit of time away, so we fo- focus a lot on exercises. While we're away on exercise, we'll obviously go through a planning phase where we'll get ready for the exercise and get ready to deploy our people. And then once we move over to our, wherever we're going to be operating from, whether that be one of uh, our stations or whether it be out of ATC, um, we'll go in, we'll make contact with the other crews from the obviously the aircraft, discuss what's going to go, happen, and then um, day-to-day we'll go through, we'll usually have a mission brief, we'll come back, we'll work out how our team's going to execute, go through, conduct the mission, and then we'll conduct a debrief with the crew. You're here at Pitch Black working, but um, I understand this is a bit of a a rest for you in a way because you've just come back from deployment. 
Well, I probably wouldn't call it a rest as such. Um, I actually, on deployment, was in a slightly more benign position than I probably am in now. Pitch black is one of the biggest exercises that we do, and it's most certainly the largest exercise that I've ever been on and I've ever controlled in. Um, thankfully, I have very faithful backseaters to help me along the way, um, but this is a big step up from the control that I've had previously. You were on rotation into, uh, was it Kandahar, you were based? Uh, no, I was actually based in Qatar for the time that I spent overseas. Okay. And what were you doing while you were there? Um, I was actually also deployed as the Chaos Watchkeeper. Um, it's probably about the same as what Ben's done previously. Um, there have, has been a review lately of the role that we're playing there and the jobs that we're doing day to day. But um, our primary function is just to facilitate a transfer of information between the American systems and the Australian ones and also to act as a point of contact or a liaison for coalition members as well as members back in Australia. And how long were you overseas? I spent four and a half four and a half months overseas but also did a small workout beforehand. What's the workout entail? Um, basically we will have to go through a force preparation training um, that's just to get us uh, I guess acclimatised and ready to operate in a deployed environment so whether it be operating with different systems, weapons, having to do any sort of um, medical treatment or battle casualty while we're over there and as well just give us an overview of how it's going to kind of be when we get there bit of theatre awareness and prep for the locality. Exactly. I mean, for locality, the with the people you're going to be working with, um, obviously we work with a lot of different nations and the cultures that we're operating in are quite different to our own. So they just want us to be prepared for that and know the ins and outs of how we should be acting while we're in a different environment. And how did you find uh, being on rotation overseas? Uh, how did that go for, for your personal approach to the work and, and what do you feel it did for you? Um, I actually thoroughly enjoyed my deployment overseas. Um, being in my particular position, I had a really good opportunity to uh, liaise with other nations and make a lot of friends from different countries. It also gave me an opportunity to see what happens in a sort of big picture overview. We don't have many opportunities to see something like that, particularly at my rank, um, but this gave me an awareness of what's happening overseas and how we kind of fit into the bigger picture and the role that we're going to be playing while we're there. And what have you brought back from deployment? To, uh, are they getting you to train people over here? or? Uh, no, I won't be doing any training here. Um, it's more just an awareness that we bring back. So we can kind of see now where we're going to fit it into things and how, how it's operating over there and the kind of tempo that people have to maintain. So I guess that gets us a little bit used to possibly where we could be going in the future for future deployments. And where do you see, see yourself back here now? You've got pitch black underway. How long are you here for? Um, well, I actually live up in Darwin, so I'll, I'll be up here for a little while. Uh, I will be posting out in January and going to our sister unit down in Newcastle, which is Three Crew. Um, hopefully we'll be able to secure a p- position on a red flag tour. Um, after that, uh, there's potential for me to become an operational director in the future, pending courses. Okay. So. Anything else you'd like to say on the gig? Um, hopefully now people have a better understanding of what we actually do, and it is a a very good opportunity to uh, gain some seriously good skills and have a chance to travel the world. We're sitting here, we're in the ops shack. Yep. Want a bit of title? Yep. How many ops uh, shacks? They're basically containers. Yep. So can you talk us through how many of those you have and what you do on a standard deploy? So it depends on the uh, deployment we uh, run. So Afghanistan, we ran uh, up to two to three, even up to four cabins, depending on uh, if it's an Australian configuration or international configuration. For 114, they've got three ops cabins right now. Uh, and depending on the scenario, as I said, they may only deploy one. Generally, you want two as redundancy. So if something goes wrong with one, 
you want to back up on similar like two engine on an aircraft four engine on an aircraft it's all there for redundancy and uh, because it's containers easy to put on a truck yeah ship in an aircraft otherwise it shouldn't be called 114 uh, mobile yeah putting the M back in mobile yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> okay and uh, so the actual radar head itself yep uh, we're here at Darwin uh, where's the radar head itself located? It's, it's in uh, sunny Timber Creek right now uh, and we've got a bunch of methods that gets us the information back here in Darwin and utilise that information. So uh, it's quite reliable uh, and it's not too bad. It's uh, probably on the cusp of cutting-edge technology compared to what other countries have got right now. It's a, quite a valuable uh, 3D radar. Very handy that you don't have to actually be sitting out there in uh, the uh, mm, desert. Yeah, not, not like we were, say, 60, 70 years ago, even 50 years ago. So uh, quite happy with it and uh, in a nice, comfy 21-degree cabin. Yeah, the air conditioning is uh, noisy for recording, but lovely yeah. for being in. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, the radar head itself, that all packs down and it's on a trailer? Yeah, it is. It's uh, on a flatbed truck. So but it is, uh, it's able to be deployed via uh, train, uh, C-17, or uh, by sea as well. So if you were deploying, one C-17 would take everything, or would you need a couple of runs? Uh, for the deployment, uh, it'd probably be two to three runs with the uh, C-17, but that's all dependent upon how much gear we're carrying. Okay. and the context that we're trying to deploy to. Just how much coverage you've got to give. Yeah, and uh, how large we want our footprint or how small we want it. How, how long is a typical shift? Uh, depends on what position you are. So if you're a junior dude, you could be uh, slapped with a four-hour shift. If you're one of the more senior dudes uh, leading up to uh, operations or whatnot, then um, how long is a bit of string sometimes. We've got uh, rules and guidelines which we like to hear to, but sometimes that's not always permitting in the contract uh, context of uh, the simulated air environment we are in right now. And so you're basically you're uh, running me through what's on the screen before. Yep. If you want to just sort of tell me what kind of things you're looking at. Uh, we're looking uh, at uh, all the sensors and making sure we've got a fused picture from uh, our own organic sensors or off-board sensors. By off-board, I mean uh, the tracks we're getting from the F-18s and whatnot. Uh, and putting that all together to give uh, information to Blue Air where red air is and uh, hopefully have an effect of red air no longer being there. Plus also uh, noticing where any um, any baddies on the ground are, like you're uh, yep. pointing out the, the surface-to-air missiles and things like that. Yeah, so the surface-to-air missiles or the uh, AAA, so anti-aircraft. Uh, so we uh, have got ability to find out where that is, uh, generally from aircraft flying overhead and going, oh, yeah, there it is right there. Yeah, so baddies on the ground, air, and at sea as well. So you're, you're, you said you're getting a lot of information from the aircraft, so yep. a combination of verbal and automatic and so on yep. via all the data links. Yep. But are you data linked in with uh, Wedgetail? Yeah, we are. So uh, we work quite similarly. So they do the same job as us, uh, airborne to us on the ground or vice versa, working as a team to provide that C2 uh, integrated picture to make sure if we're conducting offensive or defensive operations that we're having the desired effect. So to make sure we've got the uh, correct outcome that we want as a as Australian Defence Force or Coalition as well. You've got Wedgetail loitering pretty high above everything, doing yep. a lot of the command and control up there. Yep. If by some mysterious chance during an exercise it gets taken out, yep. uh, does everything come straight back to you guys? Yeah, it's completely seamless, the communications, the data links and the fuse picture that we get. So we exercise that routinely after lessons learned in uh, previous conflicts that um, we need to work uh, C2 with a primary plan and a secondary plan. And when the primary plan's uh, not there, be that the ADWNC from uh, 2 Squadron, then we'll pick it up and run and it's generally quite uh, seamless. And that's part of uh, what we're trying to work at at Pitchbike is to get those contracts down pat. So while, the, uh, while something like Wedgetail is up, 
are you just monitoring or are you actively engaged as well, taking care of other parts than what they're looking after? Uh, depending on the uh, scenario and what we're running, we could either be the secondary or the primary. They may be subordinate to us uh, or it's generally a 50-50 sharing and collaboration of efforts to make sure that C2 is providing the best outcomes possible for the shooters downrange or for the, uh, at the end of the day, the man on the ground uh, once we're conducting offensive operations. Squadron Leader Tim Main, I'm the detachment commander up here for Exercise Pitch Black 4-2 Squadron. Um, as far as the visit goes today, I'm happy to field any questions you may, you may have. However, it is at the unclassified level, so if you ask questions that are above that, I'll talk about something else or refer you to as much detail as I possibly can. So we're very welcoming today and appreciate the opportunity that you can get to uh, take photos of the aircraft and actually we'll take you inside the aircraft uh, at the end there for just a quick walkthrough and a look through. For the inside the aircraft part, uh, we can't take phones, cameras, that sort of thing on there. So I'm open to questions. Can you talk uh, about your, your rate of effort in the exercise? What sort of missions you've been flying and how, how many? And I'd prefer not to go into exact details about rate of effort. We've uh, played a fairly significant role in the exercise with our command and com- control functions, working with 114M crew up in Darwin, mm-hmm. 3 crew in Williamtown and also the Singaporean G550. Um, have you found the interoperability to go between all the different groups, not just Australian, but also with the Singaporeans and, and other assets? I think it's been really good. And just like any exercise that we do the first week, you uh, get used to the procedures, different airspace, working with different platforms, that sort of thing. Week two, typically, people start to gel, the units start to gel. And then the third week, I think, it's where it all sort of starts coming together uh, with more complex scenarios, bigger packages, that sort of thing. So we're seeing that normal process through here at Pitch Black. It'd be no different to when we go overseas and operating, say, Cope North Guam, for example. It is uh, an interesting experience for our guys to work with different nations that we haven't been involved with. For example, the UAE this time around uh, with the Mirage 2000s. Um, the Singaporeans, uh, the G550s out here again. Uh, we've got USAF F16s, the French CN235, which is usually parked over there. Um, so, no, it's a really good exercise for the junior guys. Different uh, accents on the radio, have to listen hard. Uh, so it's just a, something extra for the junior guys to work on. And are you mainly operating with the blue or the red air or a bit of both? Uh, a little bit of both, yep. yeah. So during the planning stages for the exercises, we sit down with the other participants and, and come to an agreed plan about how we want to divvy up what's on offer up here so we all get the most of the, the training mm-hmm. outcomes and objectives and what we're trying to get out of the exercise. So it's a, an equal and good share and something that everyone walks away from very happy with. So yeah. And do you generally go up ahead of the, the rest of the groups or...? Yeah, so, so typically, if you look at our aircraft, it's a mid-size AEWNC, so think of it as like a, a mid-size E3, for example. Um, so we get on station, get the systems up and running just before the fighters check into the airspace, so we're usually the first to launch, uh, and then the last ones to come home. It's a three, four hour type mission, typical? Yeah, I mean, the, the waves here are... The, uh, you know, there's been afternoon flying and night flying. They're small vols, 
Uh, so we're on station or airborne for you know three or four hours, fairly short missions. Do you share the work with the with the G550, or is it one or the other? Uh, no, we work in conjunction with the other assets, so the so 114 and the G550. Okay, so you're airborne at the same time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Do you, do you fly every day? Do you support every wave, day and night? Or? Rate of effort details, we're, we're doing a significant amount of flying here. Uh, how are you finding, uh, you've spoken about the different accents and things like that. Yeah. Uh, previous time we've had people on the show for ourselves speaking with, about the uh, wedge tail. It was just before you went off and did all the, um, the, the exercises overseas yep. over the last year or two. How have you found all that workup's been getting up to this point? Uh, for the exercises overseas. Yeah, and how's, how's the aircraft been going from your perspective? Like yeah, up to speed? it's, uh, I suppose, a recent thing where we've been involved in those overseas exercises. I mentioned Cope North Guam before, um, also Red Flag, uh, Alaska, and also Nellis. Um, so we've been doing that for a couple of years now, and that's honing the skills of the crew, both the back end and the pilots up front. That's held us in good stead. So when we operate in an exercise like this with large numbers of aircraft operating in the airspace and different nations, different platforms, different accents on the radio, it's, it's held the guys in really good stead coming here. I hear you've done pretty well at those exercises and got some reasonably good results on the board for Australia. Yeah, we, we seem to be getting good feedback on wherever we go, which is uh, important for us and something that we want to make sure continues into the future. I noticed you've got the FCC badge. How long ago did you go through the course? Exactly 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, pretty much this month, I was up here doing the final part of that course, Aces North, so yeah. How have you found things have changed in 10 years since uh, you first did the FCC course to where, where we are now with E7? I did the FCC course when I was at 41 Wing, so I was a ground controller. So I'd done postings previously at 114 uh, in Darwin and also 3 Crew. So for me... Getting airborne on this platform was a, a big change and there's been numerous capability developments since then in the last 10 years, So, which I'm, I'm sure you're aware of, yeah. Kept you pretty busy staying up to speed with everything. Definitely. I think more broadly speaking, you look at the Air Force today and we're pretty much replacing or upgrading every platform we've got. So things are getting more technological, uh, systems are getting smarter and we're replacing a lot of stuff as well. So it's been a challenge for us. Um, Can you speak about how effective Wedgetail has been in this exercise? Give me as much as you can about how we can measure or how you measure its effectiveness. Measures of effectiveness really sitting in on the crew debriefs and watching the guys debrief internally before they do the brief with Darwin players so we'll do a VidCon into the mass debrief up in Darwin. Usually I get the best feel for how the guys are going on the debrief that they do amongst themselves as a crew when they first land. The feeling's been genuinely quite positive and as I mentioned earlier in that week, first week, two weeks, there's lessons to be learnt there Mm. where you're working with platforms that you haven't worked with before. Airspace procedures are different, less familiar from where they are based back home so... One last question on the uh, ACO role yep. and FCC and so on. You've done a lot from the ground in previous roles. How's it been transitioning to doing the same thing from the air, though? Uh, much change, or does it give you a different perspective? For someone like myself, an older guy, I'd been out of control for a little while, so jumping back on into a new platform like this was uh, a challenge. Just more systems, I suppose, more integration with other platforms, different yeah. radar, SATCOM... Yeah. 
Link 16, that sort of stuff. How's the ride back there? Nice and smooth or it gets lumpy at times? Uh, it's not too bad. can be interesting coming into land here in Timber with the heat over the runway, but the guys have been doing a pretty good job on that and they're the first ones to put their hand up if they do a hard landing. So <laughs> I'm actually looking at Carl there. He's our captain, so... <laughs> The pressure's on every time he comes into land because there's a fair bit of banter if he uh, puts it down a bit too hard. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I mean, for example, here in Tyndall, you do get those thermals over the yes. runway during the day and also you might have noticed there's numerous spot fires around the place so you get the birds around those fires. So bird hazards are something that we uh, look out for here and also small wallabies as well. There's been night flying conducted during pitch black, so at dusk, things like bats and the normal wildlife movement at night. While out at RAF Base Tyndall, we spent some time with the US Air National Guard, who had some F-16s there. They were performing a mix of both red and blue teams from Tyndall, and had bought aircraft from a couple of different groups, thus we were seeing tail codes Alpha Charlie and Delta Charlie, which we felt was quite a good nod to the Australians, ACDC. Lieutenant Colonel Scott Arbogast, um, with the DC Air National Guard, I'm the uh, 121st Fighter Squadron Commander. What are you doing in pitch black? What's, what's, your, what's your role in the exercise and how many jets did you bring? We brought uh, 12 aircraft. Uh, we are here to do large force employment and uh, in a variety of different roles. The mission sets are offensive counter-air, defensive counter-air. Uh, specifically, uh, we're doing uh, CAS and uh, strike and escort missions to protect strikers uh, based on what the uh, exercise requirements are for the multinationals that are playing. And you, I understand you deployed from Korea we were part of a theater security package, and uh, the initial contingent was in Korea. So our uh, aircraft, we uh, shared half our aircraft were from Atlantic City, which is also a Jersey Air, or New Jersey Air, Air National Guard. Uh, and then the other half are our tails from uh, D.C. So we picked up the aircraft from Korea, and we brought them here for the exercise with our uh, pilots and maintainers. Do you have a, a squadron training program that you're, you're acquitting as well? Given its large force employment, we're, we're doing a lot of uh, what they call mission commander upgrades uh, for some of our young guys. Uh, we have some young pilots that this is their first opportunity to fly in a multi-ship, 60-ship packages, and uh, so a lot of those guys are upgrading uh, to that last qualification. What sort of weapons are you simulating? Mainly GB-12s, uh, laser-guided bombs, uh, GB-38s, mainly uh, JDAMs and, and LGBs for now, but uh, there hasn't been a lot of GP, general-purpose bombs. Where do you head from here? Are you staying on to do a bit of training afterwards, I understand? We're going to stay on uh, for Commando Sling and work with uh, Singapore and Australia for another exercise after this. Uh, And then we'll we'll return. So the Commando Sling with the Singaporeans is going to be held here? It'll be held here, and I believe it's the first time they're they're actually holding that exercise in uh, in Australia. Yeah, it will be the first. Right, it'll be the first time in uh, Australia. Are you doing any tanking while you're here? We're not tanking. Uh, by our regulations, we have to tank with uh, USAF tankers, and there are none here for uh, the exercise. But you would have used them to come down from Korea for getting back Oh, home. absolutely. Yeah. How, how many tanking sessions would you have had? Uh, it's normally eight or nine, uh, so it's about an eight-and-a-half-hour flight. From Korea to From here. Korea, and okay. then it's it'll take us a while to get home. Are you going <laughs> to go direct, or are you going to stage? No, we'll probably, uh, we'll probably 
go somewhere, Guam or, or Hawaii, and then stop and then try to complete the journey. Some of it kind of nice to have a break. Yeah, well, yeah, it's you know it's a little cockpit, and you're up there for uh, ten hours at a time. It gets gets cramped. That that, um, that is a major issue. Is how do you keep yourself? Uh, you know, what do you do when you're in the cockpit there? I mean, people complain about the seat pitch on a sure domestic. Sure. But yeah, we try to keep uh, each other entertained on the radios by uh, either telling stories or <laughs> playing Battleship or something. Yeah, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's just right. a long. It's not like you can get up and uh, use a lavatory or something. So, yeah. Do you do like isometrics or things like that just to keep your know, muscles and legs from tense? No, not too much. I mean, you know, you just uh, have a, have a drink, and you know, everything is is an event, and you're just trying to get through the the time of being in there. But yeah. has there been anything on this uh, pitch black that's been different for you uh, compared to other exercises? What's unique about being here? Most of the exercises. Uh, that specifically our unit have been involved with are, are, are namely in the CONUS or the United States. So it, it's been interesting working with multinational partners and uh, dealing with some of the language issues. But also uh, we also had just done a exercise cruise X uh, last November, which is similar to Pitch Black, and it was uh, hosted in Brazil. But, yeah, most of us have never been to the PAC-FAOR or obviously operated out of Australia, so all that's been unique cool. uh, in terms of being here, and we're all excited to do it. Any lessons you're taking back? Uh, there's always lessons. So anytime you, you pack up and you know take your organization to halfway across the world and, and start operations, then uh, there's always lessons learned, and, and, we're, and we're trying to provide those to PAC-F for subsequent units that, that will uh, host these or, or end up uh, participating in these exercises uh, that they won't make the same mistakes we did. So, Just to go back to that theater security package that you were talking about earlier, was it the DCA National Guard that, that manned that or was it a 50-50 with, with New Jersey as well? Uh, we split it 50-50 in terms of time mm-hmm. uh, and aircraft mm-hmm. and then uh, the pilots are 100% for the time window uh, allotted. Can you talk us through the Block 30? Um, sure. We, we, we talked briefly on the bus, but maybe go through the Block 30 and what upgrades have been done to the aircraft. Okay, so uh, it's a Block 30 big inlet. Right now you're kind of seeing it in an air-to-ground configuration, so those are the uh, wing tanks there. Uh, so if we're simulating for today and we're going out to do a strike mission, uh, we'd probably be simulating two GB-12s on uh, Station 3, two GB-38s uh, on Station 7, and then you have a, a 2 by 2 loadout, two AMRAMs, two uh, we're carrying currently the 9X. Uh, on the right side, you can't see it on the chin, or what we call the right chin. It's on the inlet. You'll see a, a Lightning AT advanced targeting pod. Most of these uh, jets have been modded uh, with the uh, Scorpion helmet, if you're not familiar with that. But it's, uh, it's obviously a helmet-mounted queuing system uh, that's y- unique uh, other than J-Hammock. So it, it, it provides the opportunity to use it on at night with MBGs, which you don't have that capability with uh, J-Hammocks. It provides a moving map. Uh, we use the saddle gateway for our data link. Um, I don't know, what other questions do you have on that? The engine 229, is it? Uh, no, it's, it, it's the uh, G100. Oh, it's G. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's all good? Thank you. Thank you, sir. Yeah, you good? Sir. All right. Chief Master Sergeant Joseph Smiley. I'm the non-commissioned officer in charge for the Pitch Black 2014 and Trisling. Now, you've uh, been responsible for making sure all the logistics and everything is sorted out, getting these aircraft here and supporting them. That's quite a burden of uh, effort. What's been involved in getting them out here and keeping them going? Absolutely. So one of the one of the greatest challenges that we faced uh, taking our equipment and packing it up and moving it almost 6,000 miles across the world is uh, logistics, uh, supply chain management, and things like that. So we moved 
about 86 increments of cargo from the United States and or Korea to here. So uh, we brought uh, it's about six C- C-17s worth of equipment, so quite a bit. That's a fair way. Um, so that was, uh, but one of the advantages to doing exercises like this is the fact that we get to do that, practice it. Uh, there will be some things that we learn along the way. And working with the Australian Customs and the AQUIS inspectors and things like that, there were some unique experiences and things that we had to do to come into Australia that we wouldn't have to otherwise. Yeah. So uh, that was probably a, two of the biggest things was the Customs and the AQUIS piece. So it's, I imagine the planning for this would have started quite some time back. Yes, we actually started planning for this about six months prior to uh, departure. What kind of spares are you bringing to keep the aircraft running? For this one, actually, we brought more uh, support equipment than we normally would because uh, RAF Tyndall here uh, is not set up for F-16, so we had to actually bring quite a bit more stuff than what we normally would. We brought a lot of support equipment, tugs, ground handling type equipment, in addition to our standard war-ready-to-supply kit package or parts package for the aircraft. So we brought a lot, a lot more support equipment for this. And how large is your team? So we have about 137 maintenance folks in total i believe we're right around 185 86 total for the pitch black team so that counts pilots uh maintenance logistics all that kind of stuff okay and each aircraft has its own dedicated team or do you rotate people around the we do we try to assign uh we call them crew chiefs in the air force so we typically try to assign a crew to an airplane it gives them an opportunity to take some pride in ownership and uh, when that airplane performs well uh, it's a direct reflection of their effort. So we try to do that as much as we can. How many hours are you looking at for supporting the F-16 per, um, per mission? We track the amount of hours that we fly, uh, obviously, to get the airplanes here and then while we're here and then to get them home. I'm not quite sure exactly how many hours we'll fly where we're here. It's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 hours per aircraft while we're here. And then in transit, you're talking 20 to 25 hours each way. Okay. So that's, that's probably a rough estimate. And uh, anything uh, particular about uh, this this exercise? For uh, you pointed out the AQUIS and bring, having to bring a lot more than you might normally do. Well, from a, from a logistics perspective, uh, from where I sit in maintenance, uh, we've had a, an outstanding opportunity to work with the Royal Australian Air Force. The uh, the partners here in Tyndall have been outstanding. Uh, we've learned a lot. Uh, we actually are going to do some inter intermingling, if you will, from the folks uh, on the other side working. The, the F-18 guys are going to send some. And their maintainers over. We're going to send some of our maintainers over so we can... We're always looking at ways to learn different things, so that's a great opportunity for us. Uh, they've been very hospitable since we've been here. Anything that we've needed, you know, they're bending over backwards to help us out, so we appreciate it. So once all this is said and done, um, how long does it take you to pack it all up and get it back home? So we'll start packing about a week and a half prior to airplanes leaving. So it's it's about... Give or take, we can have two weeks to start loading everything up, and then we have to prepare it and pre-inspect it, and then we'll have uh, inspectors come down and look at it, and then we load it. So it's uh, it's quite an effort to move uh, this amount of equipment and cargo and airplanes uh, across the world. But uh, again, pitch black and trysling is a great opportunity for us to. We need to practice that as well. So uh, it's a great opportunity for us. Okay, cool. Thank you very much. Thanks. Navigate the long white cloud with Oz Runways. Oz Runways now has full support for New Zealand with VFR and IFR maps and all AIP volumes. Our intuitive interface makes Oz Runways the easiest to use electronic flight bag on the market. And unlike older products, everything you need is included in a simple annual subscription. So you're always up to date. 
Find out why Oz Runways has been the number one iPad electronic flight bag in Australia for over three years. Find Oz Runways on the iTunes Store for a free download and a free one-month trial. Upgrade your iPad to the best EFB. Try Oz Runways today. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. Want to see Sydney from a different angle? Red Baron Adventures have the flight experience for you. From the aerobatic thrills of the Red Bull stunt plane to scenic flights over Sydney Harbour, there's something for everyone. So check it out at redbaron.com.au for the best seat in the house. Hi, I'm Dave Homewood from the Wings Over New Zealand show, New Zealand's own aviation podcast series, where we feature the stories of Kiwi pilots, warbird restorers, Air Force veterans, home builders, historians, authors, modelers, stories from aviation museums and associations, air show reports, and much, much more. The Wings Over New Zealand show loves to bring you the stories of Kiwis who've made their mark on aviation. So find the Wings Over New Zealand show online. Find more about it on the world-famous Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum and like us on Facebook. We also love to listen to Steve, Grant and the team at the Plane Crazy Down Under Show. G'day, this is Owen's Up. Just a quick note to let you know that my new ebook, 50 Tales of Flight, is now out on Amazon and iTunes. Find 50 Tales and my latest updates at owensup.com. In the meantime, sit back, relax, enjoy the show with Grant and Steve. I also managed to record interviews and chats with a few of the Australian forces who were present for our exercise Pitch Black, including Wing Commander Ben Sleeman, the CEO of 77 Squadron, Squadron Leader Rob Crawford, who was there with a C-130J from 37 Squadron, Warrant Officer Kyle Lovett, who was a uh, boomer from the KC-30A multi-role tanker transport aircraft, and also Flight Lieutenant Adam Rossart and Flying Officer Matthew Bleach, who flew the Super Hornet demonstration over the beach in front of the casino. Uh, yeah, well, good afternoon, Wing Commander Ben Sleeman. I'm the commanding officer at 77 Squadron in Williamtown. Uh, obviously, we're not in Williamtown, we're in Tyndall, so uh, I'm down in Tyndall as the Red Air uh, Task Force Commander, I guess, uh, running the Red Air out of here, using uh, 75 Squadron's aeroplanes as we're standing around in uh, this afternoon. What's your role in the, the squadron's role in the exercise of 77? Uh, 77 is doing the adversary support. So uh, we are down here coordinating what the, uh, the guys in Darwin see on their radars and the, the presentations that we're, we're giving them to, to sort out and solve the problems that they're solving. So pretty much we're just a professional red air mm-hmm. uh, support for the exercise. So professional menace. A professional menace. That's probably <laughs> a good way to put it. And that's probably what they'd be telling you too if you ask them. But, so you're yeah. typically defending the range at Delamere and Bradshaw and just the airspace. E- exactly, yeah. So we we typically set up to the south uh, and we uh, and they ingress from the north so we are exactly doing that defending Delamere, uh, Bradshaw uh, or wherever they're, they're trying to head to uh, for the occasion but yeah exactly right. Defending the base at all? Is, is the base a, a No target? the base is not a target, the base hasn't been a target for quite a probably 15 years um, now so no we tend to steer away from populated areas and uh, and obviously they're trying to simulate dropping bombs or in fact they have been so yeah. they need to use a range for that so uh, Delamere uh, primarily and Bradshaw secondarily. Now, your 77 Squadron, um, you're actually up here in 75's area, as you just said. Why aren't 75 Squadron giving this a go? Is, it, is this a chance for you guys to have a go at being red? It, it is, exactly. So 75 are in Tyndall permanently. Tyndall normally hosts the red air, so which means uh, the permanent squadron does a lot of red air for a lot of exercises, and this is just a chance to rotate them out, send them to Darwin, give them some blue air. Uh, um, you know, we were, we were blue air for it two years ago in Darwin, so it's our turn to come down to Tyndall. Have they uh, given any instructions on leaving the place as you find it and so on? <laughs> well, they've got my jets off in Darwin and we've got theirs down here, so, you know, <laughs> what goes around comes around. So, um, Not too many zaps, we hope. No, How many no. jets do you have here? 
Uh, well, we're using all of 75 jets. So they got, I think, 14, uh, and we brought another three with us. Mm-hmm. So uh, well, I think it's probably 17-ish uh, on the base, but we also have some of our the 77 sort of jets are also in Darwin mm-hmm. uh, supporting the uh, the push-up there. But all the maintenance force, however, uh, down here is, uh, is 75, so we've really just changed out the air crew mm-hmm. and the maintainers um, and all the logistics and admin and all that sort of stuff. It's uh, 75 squadron in total down in Tindall. squadron supporting both? Both Tyndall and Darwin? Uh, they're mainly doing Darwin. So all the maintenance in Darwin is primarily three squadron. There is mm. some 77 up there as well. Uh, we have four 77, sorry, four three squadron pilots with us here uh, just as part of the red air uh, rotation. But primarily, no, three squadrons Darwin running the Darwin show. So mm. the 75 aircrew are in Darwin running the flying side. Three mm. squadron maintenance and logistics and admin are running the, the rest of the support for them. So everyone's getting quite the mix up. Yeah, it is quite a mix, which is great. You, I mean, you work with people that you don't normally work with every day, uh, and we're all one fighting force, we're all one wing, you know, 81 wing, so it's good to prove that we're interoperable and there's not some random thing happening in Tyndall that we don't do in Wimtown or vice versa. So, Is it a standard fit to have the Elta pod on the shoulder station? Oh, the Hornet has so many configurations, I'd say you probably don't have a standard fit. Well, it can be carried on the wings, on the hip, or on the under the uh, fuselage. Um, it's a convenient fit for here because it frees up the other stations to, to do other things so it's a good spot for it it goes there nicely uh, and it's effective there i'd struggle to say it's a standard kind of fit how scripted is red air for this exercise do you purely respond to blue or for safety reasons do you have a basic script that you have to well, stick we to have a, uh, i guess an initial intent we get an intent from uh, the mission directors in darwin so they're overseeing the, the red and the blue so they know what blue is doing cool. and they will they won't tell us what blue is doing but they will give us some intent of uh, like today we would like to see or probably given what Blue's doing this would be a good presentation mm-hmm. um, and we will initially set that posture up but really once you get out there and you've uh, flown that it's it's fights on. They're effectively your intel their intel cell they're saying look this is what we think is going to happen today. Yeah, and it's really loose intel and in the end red provides presentation so no one's out there as red to you know run Blue into the ground or annihilate them or anything like that so yeah. you know typically you'd see somewhere a kill ratio we would die five times for every one of them that's a bad day more likely we would die 10 or 15 times for for one of them so i guess a you know 10 to 1 blue kill ratio is probably typical uh, and obviously it swings up and down but yeah so you know yes it's intel i guess in a, in a little way but but you know not really that that usable to us so, so when you're told you're ready how how hard do you defend do you, do you, do you defend to a point where if you go too hard, then the training value sort of goes out the window for the blue force. And did, did, so, is there a line where you're just told to go to? Yeah, there, there, that's the right. Yeah. So the number of tactics you're allowed to do. So it's not just get out there and go crazy for an hour. It's right. uh, it might be you can do a certain manoeuvre three times, and then we just want you to to fly straight after that, okay. or or something very similar to that. Uh, and again, that'll go up and down. So for last week and the early days of this week, when we were all learning, it was just you know quite a simple presentation and I expect probably by Wednesday maybe Tuesday next week the guidance will probably be do whatever you want yeah. <laughs> uh, in terms of red but we are simulating an adversary uh, airframe and an adversary weapon system you know it's not generically modeled on any particular country or type of missile it's just a, a generic adversary it's not typically a hornet it's not a hornet that's no. right and our, so we are outgunned and we're outnumbered okay. uh, so we you know we expect to lose but uh, we're certainly not going to do that easily if we've got any uh, say in the matter <laughs> and yeah. uh, once you're declared dead you exit the battlefield loiter and then you're cleared to come back in that's right yeah so we do we exit uh, to get out of the flow and clean it up so that blue air we're not in their way and they you know it's like who's that pest that just won't get out of the way so we do exit and we put on some um, our mode three our air transponders so that they know that we're dead and uh, the control agencies know we're dead 
Uh, and yeah, then we go back down and there's a couple of airfields, simulated airfields, they're just points in the sky, obviously, but uh, where we will uh, we re- uh, regenerate. Uh, and at a point we'll re-enter the flow. And again, that's all scripted, so it's not like everybody go there and all of a sudden 20 aeroplanes come alive again. It'll be staggered so that there's only a couple uh, doing that at any one time. I know you've got uh, like a simulated missile on the uh, wingtip. I think that's sending lots of information back and forth about what it's looking at and when it's fired. Um, so the, the wingtip on this aeroplane is actually an ACM iPod, so oh, okay. air combat manoeuvring instrumentation. Uh, and it has a little data cartridge in the back, hard drive in the back, so... Um, that gets given to Cubic, who, who support us on the exercise, and we, uh, we use that to play back, and we know exactly, or pretty close to exactly, who's where and who's shooting at who. So, yeah, that's what that does. The other jet over there obviously has a heat-seeking missile uh, on the wingtip that we're using for, for training with uh, close-range uh, missiles. Okay. And what role are the Learjets and the West Winds playing? Are they just basically an extra airframe? Exactly. Just another target. So, um, you know, uh, they go out there. They don't, they're not carrying weapons. They simulate because they're all typically ex-fighter uh, uh, or strike pilots, so they've got a fairly good idea of what's going on. And they're just, yeah, really a, a slower, uh, less-performing airframe. Uh, but they're also smaller, so they're harder to detect. Yeah. Uh, and they can, uh, they can do some damage if they get in there uh, without being seen. So it just adds another two airframes to the flight. And, and would they typically it. fly a, like an A7 or a, a, an SU-25 type profile? Yeah, is, is given that... a MiG-21 uh, okay. off the top of my head. Again, generically, it doesn't yeah. really matter what they fly. They fly on a Westrand or a Learjet, yeah. uh, and we give them a close-in, like a very old, uh, like maybe an AIM, a very early model AIM-9 uh, as their weapon. That's all they've got. But really, there's two pilots, and they've only got eyes. They don't have a radar, so right. they're really only good if they can see somebody and get quite close to... Um... So they're not flying with any EW kits? No, not, the, not these guys, yeah. yeah. No, that's a different... Um, uh, this is Pelair up here, okay. so that's Raytheon, that aeroplane you're talking about. Yeah, that's not up here for the, this, this exercise. Right. So but, it's not good. but we're doing our own EW yeah, uh, training on board, so yeah. It's not good to get killed by a west wind then. No, it's not, but I don't think they've taken any of this, uh, <laughs> this exercise. So, yeah. Maybe a few beers in the bar. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think there would be. Squadron leader Rob Crawford from 37 Squadron. How you doing, mate? Yeah, good, Grant. Yourself? Yeah, not too bad, mate. Not too bad. How are you enjoying Pitch Black? Uh, really enjoying it. We've uh, we've been up here for two weeks, so we've got one more week to go. And uh, the guys are getting a lot out of it. Oh, it was a lot of fun the other day. We uh, got to come and hang out with you guys on the uh, deta- uh, the uh, hard stand at Tyndall. So you've been based out of Tyndall the whole time. Uh, are you getting much time just to come to Darwin? or was? Uh... No, well, this is the first time. So today's a really great day, as you can see, uh, the open day. Got the aircraft open, and the uh, line looks like it's about 15 metres long at the moment. Yeah, you're doing well. It's, it's a, it's uh, a good, good for recruiting. Yeah, definitely. Everyone wants to get in a Herc. So, mate, how long have you been with the Hercs? Uh, look, I've been with the Hercs. Uh, I initially uh, converted onto type in uh, 2001. So I spent uh, about nine to ten years of the squadron um, before moving on to other things. And uh, I've actually been posted back recently. So this is a really great time for me. I'm really glad to be back. Good to get your hands back on it. Exactly. <laughs> Where were you before the Herx? Uh, before Herx, uh, I actually studied at uh, the uh, ADFA, so okay. the Australian Defence Force Academy. Uh, I studied at aeronautical engineering, uh, and that was uh, yeah, mostly joining in 96. During Pitch Black, what have you guys been up to? So Pitch Black, it's a, it's a large force uh, employment exercise. So we've really been learning a lot about mission cycle and mission planning and uh, that's really why we're here and tactically integrating with uh, the other the other nations and uh, fighters, uh, airlift. Uh, it's been a really great exercise for that and uh, the guys are learning a lot. Cool. And uh, have you gone, have you uh, managed to succeed with the missions or have there been moments when the fighters have found you? Or 
Uh, at times, it's uh, it's it's learning on both, you know, both uh, both sides of the fence. Uh, we've been learning, the fighters have been learning, and I think the message is getting through. Um, it, it's a, it's an evolution. Yeah, and, uh, I hear it's it's good working with our with our own guys. <laughs> I hear a few people have been uh, kind of surprised at what a J can do down low. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, it, it's good. To, it's good to get the word out there. So you know, it's a low level uh, tactical air lifter, and uh, it does a really great job. Uh, recently, you know, we've had the, the radar warning receiver upgrade. We're moving through to final operational capability at the end of the year, and this is one of those building blocks, uh, really strong building blocks for an exercise to, to move through to that. So how have you been for operational readiness with the, with the crew? They've been, the, the boys have kept up and running. You've been able to meet each mission? Yeah, we, we uh, had to drop a sortie yesterday, but, you know, these things happen. Uh, we had a small hydraulic leak, but the guys uh, did a, a fantastic job yesterday. They uh, worked all night uh, and uh, all day and uh, got the aircraft working, so we're actually able to make it up to the air show today, which is really good. We're really glad to be here. Yeah, it was good to have you here. I mean, it would have been a bit of a hole without the Herc in the lineup. Well, one of the few with the uh, allowing people on board, so yeah. it's uh, it's fantastic. It's a great opportunity, good PR, and you know, get the Air Force out there in 37 Squadron. Yeah. So what's coming up for the rest of the next week? Because you said you already had the two weeks of exercises. There's one more week to go. What's... Yeah, so uh, the final week, it's uh, it's moving into more complex scenarios. Uh, obviously, we've got the red air and blue air teams, and uh, we'll see how it goes for the boys. So just moving, you know, stepping it up a bit, uh, moving into more night missions as well. So it's going to be challenging for the crews on both sides of the fence, you know, for fighters and for airlift, and uh, the guys are looking forward to it. What kind of altitudes have you been doing during the day? Uh, by day, uh, it's, it's generally 250 feet, so terrain contouring, 250 feet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> really throwing it around a bit. Yeah, the guys do, and uh, they are good at it. The guys are well trained, and they they uh, they have the, the right qualifications and the know how and experience, and uh, they're really enjoying it. So after pitch black, what then? Uh, so pitch black uh, again, just moving on to other exercises. Uh, very high operational tempo at the moment. Uh, the next six months, we're we're very busy. We're very busy at the squadron. Um, obviously, we've got the uh, work in the Middle East. We've been there, as you know, for 11 years, over 11 years now. And uh, notably, the drop that we've just got off uh, in Iraq. Uh, it's been very dangerous, but uh, the guys are qualified and trained to do that job. And uh, we're really proud of the squadron that we've been able to do that. Well, thanks very much for your time, Rob. Appreciate Cheers. you coming on the show. Thanks, mate. Uh, Warren Officer Cole Lovick. I'm up here for the Pitch Black Open day at RAF Base Darwin. And what have you been doing with the KC-30 during uh, Pitch Black? Uh, during Pitch Black, we're obviously refuelling the FA-18s, um, both A and B models and our F models, the new Super Hornets. So predominantly launching out of Ambly, or we have been launching out of Ambly, uh, transit up into the uh, the exercise area close to RAF Base Tindall there, and uh, we'll, we're on station for a couple of hours refuelling, so... Yep, and then turn around, head back. Turn around, head back. About an eight, eight and a half hour flying day. So all up, you know, you're looking at a good 10, 12 hour day. That's a long uh, shift. Yeah, yeah, get used to that. How long does it take you to get ready? So you said it's about a 10 or 12 hour day. So I guess there's an hour or so on the ground before you fly. Generally, um, yeah, generally, you know, rock into work. You'll, uh, you'll check that nothing's changed, check your crew. Check all the maintenance boards and and our uh, maintenance systems. Make sure that everything's serviceable on the aircraft, and then uh, step to the aircraft. So you're talking, you know, you're in work an hour and a half, two hours prior to uh, to your sortie. In that time, you may do uh, your refueling brief as well with the uh, with the pilot. So, and that's just talking about uh, 
what you're expecting for the day, any emergency situations and how you're going to uh, cope with that sort of stuff. About an hour before you step to the aircraft, external walk around of the, uh, the aircraft, checking everything's all right on the aircraft, internal sort of walk around, checking holds are secure, and then for me, jump on my panel, power that up, and pre-flight the panel, make sure all the uh, refuelling systems are working properly. Yeah, because you're, to use the American phrase, you're the boomer. The boom, that's it. Yeah, but uh, so we're running probe and drogue at the moment. Um, The boom's still not quite certified yet. What did you do for your training to get up to speed on this role? All training was actually provided by uh, CAE, and all the guys that have come into this role at the moment are, um, they're already previous M and Air crews, so they've, uh, there's a couple of loadmasters, we've got a fair few flight engineers, about five flight engineers. There's quite a high level of uh, assumed or or, uh, aviation knowledge there already, so... We'll go into, um, into CAE in Amberley there. Uh, it's about four weeks of actual ground training, uh, just learning about the aircraft, all the, all the systems, all your refuelling systems and uh, how the whole sort of set up for refuelling works. And then we're about three weeks of simulator training and that, uh, that gets you just to a basic level prior to actually going flying on a live aircraft. So it's, uh, it's about 12, 14 weeks we're actually qualified to uh, go out solo and and uh, refuel ourselves. So. Okay. So uh, on any given mission during pitch black, you'd be uh, running out the pods and. Yep. Uh, do you run both simultaneous? We do. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. We run uh, both uh, both sides. Obviously, put them out. Obviously, once we're into it, all our receiver aircraft will come up on the left wing, and we'll from there we'll start controlling around the back of the aircraft so that, it's just a, a natural flow so we'll put the first one across onto the right pod second one on the left they'll take their fuel we'll move them across to the right hand side of the aircraft and it's just a flow from left to right as we go so it's quite sort of natural it works quite well they've got a uh, a fair body, bit of responsibility for controlling their own sort of separation while they're out on our wings as mm-hmm. well so about how many um, many aircraft are you refueling each mission? The last one I'd done, I only done 10 aircraft. They, uh, it, it, because, the, well, it was one of the first pitch black sorties, so some of the uh, squadrons hadn't tanked off us for a while, so a few of them actually done what they call dry plugs, so they'll actually uh, just practice plugging in on the, on the, the hose uh, without taking fuel. Although I only had uh, eight or ten receivers, I think I'd be, I had about 20 to 30 contacts in total. <laughs> so average, I think, for our... Uh, since uh, they've really rolled into the exercise, it's about 12 to 14 receivers a day, um, and you could be doing anything up to 30, 40 contacts in a day. And it's just the so, one the one tanker per mission? You're not putting two uh, up? Yeah, at the moment we've, uh, we've only got the two aircraft uh, flying so one's doing pitch black right. and uh, yeah that's doing all the refueling the other one's off around the world doing yep. uh, other tasking so. of course yeah because the others are still being prepped or uh, yeah we've got uh, one's in servicing in Brisbane and at the moment we've got two in Spain or 001 is, is the test bed aircraft and uh, 005 is over there supporting oh. that at the moment so when you're transferring fuel a Typically, how long is an aircraft on the, on the, um, the connection for? Uh, d- obviously, it depends on the amount of fuel. Most of the time, 
on uh, these pitch black sorties. They're only taking around five thousand pounds, so that's about that equates to about three to four minutes on the hose for each aircraft, and uh, and obviously move off. Next ones come on. So we generally uh, most of the guys or my, the uh, jets squadrons fly in uh, in groups of four so we'll generally get four at a time control them around as we're finishing them off the next four are coming up it's quite a constant flow and the timings you know they keep it pretty tight so they're sort of all uh, flying one after the other so it works pretty well and uh, meanwhile you're just sort of pretty much flying a racetrack pattern yeah that's correct probably uh about 30 miles long and 15 miles wide is is the general air to air uh, pattern so so you said you're kind of close to Tyndall. Are you just sort of flying above it or...? Uh, no, generally out over, if you know, Delamere Range okay. or uh, or Bradshaw Airfield, out, out uh, slightly out to the west there. But it's all considered part of the exercise area out that way. Yeah. So. Sort of the area where red goes so, to reset. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, Tyndall probably not quite visible, but... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, in terms of flying, it's only about five minutes for the jets, you know. It's yeah. not far at all. About what altitude are you generally at when you're doing this? G- generally when we're tanking, on, um, I think we're at about uh, 24,000 feet okay. at that time. We'll transit up at about thirty to 40,000 feet. Fifteen minutes prior to the area, we'll, uh, we'll, that's when we'll get, descend, start talking to uh, all the controlling agencies for access Yep. into the uh, the restricted airspace and exercise area. You know, start doing our checks, getting the hoses out, getting ready to go. So, What's your uh, parameters for operating the hoses and, and having those drogues out there in terms of airspeed? Airspeed, air uh, obviously limiting airspeeds, but uh, between 180 knots to 325 knots. So. Probably the most common speed would be uh, 270 knots. So from that, if we have uh, any emergency situation, our response is to sort of drive away from the problem. So obviously you're thinking about that uh, 325 knots as a limiting speed. Uh, if you overspeed that, there's lots of inspections and it's probably going to call it a day, you know. So, <laughs> so uh, 270 knots is generally yeah. where we sit. The, the big question, of course, relates to the boom. The probe and drugs are all up and fine, but uh, any indications on how long till the boom's ready? Yeah, I think we're expecting the boom to uh, more or less be signed off to us towards the end of this year. Obviously with uh, some of the high-profile sort of the, the JSF getting our first one next year, I think there's a big push to try and have our boom and our aircraft bring the first one back to Australia. So we're hearing lots of good things about the boom. It's actually uh, doing what they want it to do now. It's, you know, it's, it's getting there. So we have heard that... Uh, we should start seeing the boom in operation in Australia, hopefully towards the end of this year. From there, obviously, although we're trained for uh, boom as part of our training, actually doing it on a live aircraft, I think there'll be a lot more training to come to get us up to speed. I suspect you're going to have to do refresher. Oh, definitely. There's uh, a couple of American guys working on the test aircraft in Spain, so I think we're expecting um, one or two of them to come across. We've got the simulator back in Ambly where we can just play around but obviously nothing like the real thing yeah. so i expect we'll get some of those guys from spain across and they'll get us uh, hopefully get us up and proficient anything else you'd like to say about being a refueler on the uh, kc30 <laughs> obviously i'm a load master by trade so certainly a bit different for me 
little bit more comfort so, yeah, than a Jag. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that, for sure. <laughs> yeah, bashing around in the back of Herks for uh, <laughs> for 12 years. So, no, this is, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a great aircraft. Once it is up and running and, and we get that boom going, it's going to be a great capability, you know. The force extension we'll get from, uh, from having it all serviceable, it's going to be fantastic, I think. So my name's Flying Sir Matthew Bleach. I'm a Weapon Systems Officer at One Squadron over at Ambly in Brisbane. I'm initially streamed as an Air Combat Officer and then specifically streamed down to the uh, WISO stream, so the Weapon Systems Officer stream. It takes approximately three years to get through all of the training and I've currently been at the squadron for two years now. I'm Flight Lieutenant Adam Roussart. I'm a pilot with One Squadron. been with uh, One Squadron for two years now and uh, from start to finish it's about four years to graduate um, operationally on a Hornet. I flew Classic Hornets with 75 Squadron for two and a half years before streaming to the Super Hornet. Okay, how did you find the transition? Uh, the transition's relatively easy. Um, the basic uh, core of the aircraft is the same. Um, it's just the onboard systems of the Super Hornet, which are far superior to the Classic Hornet, so uh, a lot more toys to play with, uh, and it's, it just makes us a, a lot more lethal out there, particularly with the two-person crew. Have you found the training for that? Is that sort of different to everything you've ever done? Um, well, coming from my background as a single pilot, Hornet pilot, it was actually quite an easy transition just to hand over that. And as you said, uh, the air-to-air and the air-to-ground, we can do that simultaneously. So whilst I'm worried about the air threat, Bleachy is worried about the air-to-ground pass, setting up the weapons and making sure that we're good to go and we get in and get out quite efficiently. Now, of course, you're doing a handling display uh, out near the, over the beach near the casino, so there won't be any weapons targeting or anything going on then. But Bleachy, you'll be on board. Uh, What are you going to be doing during the middle of the uh, handling display? Yeah, so it's a lot of backing up ads in these kind of environments, you know, very highly trained air crew, however, um, adrenaline can get the better of you, so it's just making sure that we're both on the same page, making sure um, we're doing the handling display as we've been authorised to do, and um, also just having a good look out and actually enjoying the the display. (laughs) And how do you find, like, I know sometimes if I'm not the one flying the aerobatics I can get a little woozy did it take you much to get used to that it doesn't take you long you know it's um they smash it into a few flights and then you're kind of good to go so after a couple of flights you're fine how long did it take you guys to work up the display have you inherited this from another um display couple or is it uh is this have you made this one yourself uh no so the classic hornets did it for the last pitch black uh, and we've just had a couple of weeks to kind of prepare for it. So we just did an emergency sim, practicing procedures and handling, uh, and then it's basically a, a discussion with ourselves and the executive team to figure out what we're going to do and then get that authorised. So it's there's nothing in this display that we don't do on a regular basis. We're just doing it close to the ground so that people can see. So the actual workup for it that's involved is uh, virtually none. It's just making sure that uh, we're... Uh, in a position to deal with any uh, unforeseen emergencies, yeah. and that's the key focus for it. Yeah, coping on where your exits are and um, the, dealing with the energy management and so that's on. That's right. Yep, okay. Uh, so a few practices, out you come, you're going to be doing it. What kind of airspeeds and heights and so on are you looking at as you're doing this? So we'll be authorised down to 250 feet, and uh, for all of our level passes, for anything turning, it'll be a minimum of 500 feet. And we'll be anywhere from 150 knots to 500 knots uh, for the display. For the last pass, it'll be at 500 knots and a departure into the vertical. Uh, is you gonna, are you going to be doing much in the way of alpha, high alpha? Or? Yeah, we'll be authorised to, to um, show off the alpha capabilities of the jet within reason at low levels. So uh, we will be demonstrating that. We'll be demonstrating the Super Hornet's turning capability, so max performance, minimum radius turning. And um, it's also at slow speed handling as well. Awesome. 
I'm looking forward to seeing the show. Thanks very much for your time, guys. No worries. Thanks. Thank you. Foreign forces who attended Exercise Pitch Black 2014, I was able to record a group briefing with the Pruovacasa CN235 transport aircraft, who were with the French Armed Forces of New Caledonia, and also a quick chat with Wing Commander Titan from the Royal Thai Air Force. The discussion with the CASA CN-235 crew took place in their assigned bunker, so thus it had quite a bit of air conditioning noise in the background, so my apologies that the sound quality for this chat wasn't quite up to our normal standard. You're just one, with one aircraft. We are participating to the exercise as a, as a transport aircraft. Uh, we are included in, into the flow with some escort from the fighters and just uh, performing simulated air dropping and uh, ta- tactical landings. It's a good exercise for us to, to train uh, the French pilots here because we can perform um, package flights with C-130. For us, it's a very good opportunity because in France we can do that. Yeah, so there's specificity en France, in Paris. Yes. Yeah. So there's a lot of unrestricted airspace. Yes. <laughs> Big empty. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so are you tasked with the, with the C-130 or do you fly? Yeah, sometimes, yeah. And uh, we can do uh, by our own also, just, just flying alone. Tonight we will perform a low-level na- navigation by night. Mm-hmm. So we are allowed to fly uh, 1,000 feet AGL without any uh, night vision goggles. Wow. Uh, we will simulate a drop over Timber Creek mm-hmm. and then perform a tactical landing uh, at Delamere Airfield with just six beacon lighting on the runner. Last week we also performed a mission with, uh, we were a high value asset with uh, almost 30 fighters to escort us <laughs> to perform our mission and some like 20 in front of us just trying to kill us. <laughs> We, we, we did good. <laughs> you still uh, here? Yeah, we're still here. Do you have any uh, ECM or electronic movement? No, 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 no. Not in that aircraft. Is that why we fly with uh, C-130 sometimes mm-hmm. when the ground threat is, uh, is, is here? Mm-hmm. Because you have a self-protected aircraft with a warning system. They can just tell us to turn right or left. To yeah. avoid so we'll avoid both at the same mm-hmm. time. So right. And when we are flying alone, we are counting on fighters to tell us where the threat is, or a C2 agency, the AWACS. Uh, they, give, they give us some uh, green sectors we can go to avoid all the threat. So the survivability in an exercise like this is good? Yeah, yeah, it's very good. Shifting tack, how did you get yourselves and the aircraft down here? Where did you come in through from? Uh, we flew from Numia to Cairns airfield, just for customs and uh, fuel uh, refueling, then to Darwin because our Intel officer was first uh, based in Darwin and then we getting back here with us in Tinder and uh, that's it. It's like 10 hours of flight to do everything. Yep. Okay. How long have you both been with the aircraft in particular, this type of aircraft? Uh, me, uh, one year. Just just get uh, got qualified on this aircraft to, to come in New Caledonia and uh, before I flew uh, the C-160 so it's Transal, I don't know if you know yep. that, so French and German made for seven years. Went to Afghanistan, uh, Africa, everywhere. 
I, I just came here to, to fly the C1 to C5, so, C3, 5, sorry. You're quite used to uh, this kind of heat and uh, desert type of environment. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> but uh, my friend Yannick here uh, flew the, the CN235 for seven years. Yes, almost uh, the same. I'm a baby Kaza. <laughs> Always a Kaza. And uh, with this aircraft, we do a lot of things in Africa also. In Mali recently, performing medical evacuation for all troops there. Yeah. In France, in the real wartime, we are allowed to use the aircraft when uh, the threat is just, we say, level one, but it's just for maximum manpads and uh, uh, triple A. That's the maximum we can do with a uh, in real time. Yeah. So for us, the exercise is uh, yeah, up, up level. It's a really good training, but yeah. if one can do hard, you can do low, low, uh, low levels. So. Do you go elsewhere in the region to do training like this? Do you, do you, do you have the exercises uh, in Guadalajara? Uh, we participated in, in Kiwi Flag mm-hmm. last year in New Zealand, but I think this is the, 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 two, the two only exercises we do here. Sometimes Brown Shark in the Papua New Guinea. New Guinea. New Guinea, New sorry. Guinea. But it's cancelled for the next year, so most ways. Pitch black is a bigger exercise we Is this we the first pitch black you've taken part in? Yeah, yeah. So but it's first time for a transport aircraft. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How many aircraft do you have in Tom Tunja? Uh two. Just two. It, uh, in fact it's a mixed squadron. We have two aircrafts, two Kaza two three five and three helicopters, Pumas. And we are uh, working together in the same squad. How long would your duty be in uh, New Caledonia? Uh, usually it's two years, but you can request another year. And uh, so almost everybody do a three years deployment in New, in New Caledonia and with family. We, can, we oh. take our family with us. Bit of a change. Yeah. How <laughs> many <laughs> people all together in the, in the detachment here? Uh, nine. Uh, nine, including Brody. Mm-hmm. It's kind of kind of a French guy now. <laughs> <laughs> um, how were you selected to join in? Did you, did you put yourself forward? Um, no, it was a really lucky circumstance. I worked down in the museum in Melbourne, and I happened to speak French. And all I was doing there was working on aircraft. So they said, "You're going to go and do this." So I said, "Okay, thanks." Cool. Took the opportunity. Anyway, so you're mostly acting as a liaison to help out, or uh, we call it slave, <laughs> <laughs> or no. driver, or but that's no, 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 no liaison was a really good job. Uh, just because we can't speak English, I mean, but we are not used to all culture thing and uh, protocol and everything. So uh, Brody really, really did a great job uh, welcoming us here and uh, just uh, introducing us to everybody. It really facilitated, I don't know if you can say that, but uh, just relation with everyone. So it was really good for us. We That's really appreciate it. thing you said. He <laughs> 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 have also an uh, uh, aeronautical background, mm-hmm. so he can help us sometimes when we don't understand what to say. The briefings so and every, so everything. So it's good for this point also, not all, only for the logis- logistical point, but also for the, for the work. Yes. So do you fly every day? Yeah, yeah. We are only just one crew, so uh, we flew uh, four times a week. So just yeah. one, one, just one day. We, we yeah. didn't fly here last week, and it would be the same for this week. Tomorrow. No, yeah. Tomorrow, Yeah, tomorrow we'll not. We will not fly tomorrow. Okay. 
and then we push out further up to Darwin for the Asia. In fact, we are two pilots and one loadmaster minimum. But for this, fli- for this flight, uh, we are we prefer to be uh, three pilots, one in the jump seat, mm-hmm. to help us to understand what the situ agency say. <laughs> and it's a good training for us, so yeah. everybody go in flight mm-hmm. most of the time because Don't the rest. Of the rest of the time, <laughs> you stay on ground to prepare the the next mission. Mm-hmm. I just flew twice uh, during the exercise. <laughs> That's what not our I was really expecting. But uh, we, as we are only three, uh, somebody has to to stay here to to plan and prepare the next mission. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's kind of a uh, hard work, and uh, we plan to come. Uh, only with two pilots here, but uh, up for uh, lucky, we had one more pilot coming here for training, so it's a good thing. Yeah. Is that a normal thing to do to send pilots from France to New Caledonia for training? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, uh, not, not particularly for exercises, but uh, as we are, we are five pilots in New Caledonia, and uh, five or uh, four of us are uh, captains. And uh, three are uh, instructors, and as uh, people are always deployed in France, it's kind of hard to to, to train pilots. So we just uh, uh, welcome the, them in, in New Caledonia to, to train them. Mm-hmm. When when this exercise is over, is there a process by which you you, you share the the learning with, with the rest of the yeah, sure. yeah. yeah. I will make a report for that and uh, with a lot of lessons learned uh, mm-hmm. and uh, we will just talk uh, with our friends tell them uh, how we, we, we did everything mm-hmm. yeah we will share that and uh, I think our trainee pilot will uh, come back to France and tell for his friend uh, how, we, how it work here <laughs> Have you learned anything out of the exercise whereby you might have had to make some little changes? Yeah, we did, but we are quite used to work with all nations. When we are deployed in Afghanistan and everything, it's just like working with all, uh, all nations. Mm-hmm. And there are standards procedures that are uh, the same for ev- everyone. And mm-hmm. the French are really involved in that. So we, we don't use particular French rules, but just uh, like everyone, uh, same rules. Like na- with NATO and all other countries, we, we have the same rules. So there's not not so much big deal. We have to, the only thing which is kind of hard is understanding, mm-hmm. because we, we we kind of speak English, but not so much. <laughs> we have to we can update our uh, procedure. Yeah. Just it's not uh, all just, our just not new maintain competence. Maintain competence and also uh, made a feedback of uh, how you prepare the mission. The good logistical points you have, and we have, we haven't. So, like uh, Bitcom to brief, to be permission. We don't uh, are used to use yeah. that, uh, and so for us, it's a, it's, it's a good feedback we send. Mm-hmm. So you consider so far that the exercise has been a success? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really impressive. And you haven't died. No, not yet. <laughs> maybe, maybe tonight we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks to the Blue Fighter yeah. <laughs> and Argenti. Merci beaucoup. And okay, um, my name is Wing Commander, Glitzna Sugdi, but Kosa is my Titan. And uh, I'm reported to be the, the pilot in this SSI and also um, in charge with safety officer. And uh, you're here flying the Gripen with the Thai Air Force, Royal Thai Air Force. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so on that is uh, my, sorry, is uh, my Air Force first time that we sent the grip band to overseas training. 
and how's that turning out? Yeah, we I think we we're so happy with that. Um, my team, they did very well. I think we 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 ongoing our expectation. Cool. And how have you found uh, this is the first time for the group in working outside of Thailand? Yeah, it's actually it's not yet because uh, we have the three times, but it's the actual activity. But it's uh, for the exercise training. It's a big part of that. We we never be just like a deploy, just six aircraft like this before, and so on. That uh, we prepare a lot to be here, and pitch black is compared just like in our mindset. If compared in Thailand, we have the exercise Cop Tiger. We call it just like a. If compared with football, it's just like a Champion League, <laughs> but there be the pitch black just like a World Cup in Asia part. Yeah. And I imagine there was lots of logistics for. Uh, like, what kind of support gear do you need for the Gripen over when you travel overseas? Yes, uh, if compared to F sixteen, I think uh, on the traveling here and the spare part is not like much like that, because the first is club, the club is small and so smart. So we we plan to be here, but for us that uh, we trust that our team can prepare very well, and so on. If you look into an exercise, we. We we can enjoy every sortie as much as as much as possible. Yep. Okay. Now you're here last pitch black with the F16, and now you're here with the Gripen. Um, can you tell us what you found different? Yeah, actually, uh, the aircraft characteristics is not brand too much because uh, they always uh, just like a Moscow aircraft, but inside just like a phone, year by year. Last time we compared is um, maybe we used a Nokia, right? Last time, <laughs> no touchscreen, we think, but now just like a technology shift to the other way in the new future. So inside, different. That is in the, the model, the aircraft is not different, but equipment is pretty cool. Okay. Was there a lot of effort to convert from flying the F-16 to flying the Gripen? Yes and no, Ali. Because uh, our, our pilot, uh, we convert from the F-5 and F-16 to be here. So, but, but in the future, maybe we will bring just like a new guy, just combat ready, just for example, the so L thirty nine to be here. But maybe next going on in the future. Okay. Now, uh, I hear that you've uh, bought your own catering team with you. Um, I think you must be one of the only uh, only air forces that's bought their own catering team. Yeah, I think it's a very surprise that <laughs> because uh, for for us it's not surprise, but we, when we talk with uh, our union here in flying, that they're so surprised that oh, we brought our catering here. I think it's just like our welfare, and yeah. to let people just like uh, no, don't have a homesick too much. <laughs> so and uh, yeah, we are Asian people, and we don't cope with uh, just like a uh, European style, and to be like this. So yeah, so to bring here to just like uh, let the, our crew, our team to be happy yeah. and ready for fight. Well, as a lover of Thai food, I can attest that uh, yeah. that's a very good idea because yeah. it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, so just like our gripen. It looks like a chili, small and spicy. <laughs> nice. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Not all of the content I recorded while at Exercise Pitch Black was with military personnel. I was able to record a discussion with Mick Gablonski, the base manager for CHC's search and rescue helicopters at Tyndall. He's also one of the crew members in the back of the helicopter when it goes out to perform its missions. And there was also a quick chat with Nobby, one of the restorers of a beautiful F4U5N Corsair that was on display during the public day at RAF Base Darwin. 
from an aircrewman's point of view, you're, you're the camera manager in the back. You also uh, operate the winch if, if needed to and basically assist with patient care. Also getting the rescue crewman ready or the other delegated crewman and getting out onto the ground um, and working out the best way to do that. Uh, assisting the pilots and other duties, navigation, um, radios, whatever's needed in the back. So a bit of a jack of all trades essentially. Yeah. Well, what's your background? You mentioned you're ex-military. Uh, yeah, ex-military, um, ex-army and air force. Yeah, did nearly uh, 19 years all up in the military before coming across to CHC. What were you doing in the military beforehand? Um, I was a technician with 75 Squadron prior to joining this company. Working on the Hornets? Yes. What made you decide you wanted to uh, leave the military and come across to... Did you um, have this in your mind? Or I always it? had this in my mind, yeah, and um, it was an opportunity that, that arose. I was, I was a casual with them prior to, as just a down-the-wire guy, and it, uh, an opportunity arose, and uh, it was too good an opportunity to turn down, so it's a job of a, a lifetime, really. With the, As far as pitch black is concerned, what, uh, what extra measures are you taking for this exercise? Um, we've had an additional helicopter and crew um, for this exercise deployed to Tyndall. Um, so basically we can cover um, all the flying windows and any other contingencies that, that may arise that are required by the RAF um, that they want us to do. So what kind of uh, missions have they got you doing? Uh, a lot of training at the moment. So with the Foreign Forces, we're doing a lot with uh, the American medical staff. So in our winching uh, procedures and getting them on, if they have to respond with us, RAF police dogs. So we do winching with those guys, deploying them into the field. Firefighters. So we do all that sort of stuff with those guys as well, just uh, as an initial response, as a part of the emergency response plan for, for Tyndall. How are the dogs with uh, the noise and things like that? We spend a lot of time with them on the ground first, getting them used to the sensory overload for the, for the dogs, as you can imagine, is uh, quite overwhelming. So having the aircraft running and getting them in and out of the aircraft uh, and spending a lot of time doing that before we actually fly with them. We haven't had any accidents and, and things with the dogs, so it's been worthwhile. Do, do they wear the mutt-muff things? They do, yeah, yeah, they're, they're muzzled for sure. And Yeah, because I know in the, in the US a number of the pilots who fly with their dogs have things called mutt-muffs and it's like hearing protection for your dog. Oh, OK, I haven't seen them, but, um, yeah, they, they're, they're well restrained and, and well cared for. Turn if I can go back to the exercise. Yeah, sure. So if you can give me just an idea of, you were, you were talking before about the 10-minute notice and day and night, just a bit of an overview of the service that you're providing. Well, basically, we provide an all-weather day-night uh, SAR coverage for the RAF as a part of our contract. For the exercise itself, as I said, with two machines and two crews, we're able to cover all that both day and night um, on standby for, for at, on location to provide that coverage that they require. How long is the contract? How often is it renewed? It's a 10-year contract and it's um, into the first life extension so there will be a tender process, I guess, in the near future on, uh, and, and we'll see what happens. You've got both helicopters here but you're covering Darwin as well as yes. Tyndall. So what's the um, response time to get to Darwin? Basically, it's about an hour and a quarter to okay. Darwin from here. So uh, all the airspace is actually out to the south and west. It's actually closer from Tyndall to get to the exercise airspace than it is to Darwin. But you, do you need to have an air aircraft at Darwin while they're operating? Or? No, cover it all from here. Do you supply any support to the marine detachment that's here at the moment, or do they do uh, it themselves? Not the land stuff, we don't. No, when the uh, aircraft are here with, um, as a part of the exercise fr southern frontier, we do. Mm -hmm. We cover those guys and we do some training with them. Um, but the land force guys, no. Do you also cover people like uh, the Singapore Air Force was here just before the exercise? Yes. Is that part of the RAF contract that's just extended to include visitors? Yeah, that's a part of the Foreign Force ag Agreement that I'm aware of, and, and we do cover some for those guys when they're they're in town for sure and what's it like working with the other groups is there aside from language barriers is there, is there anything else or are the procedures pretty much standard everything's pretty standard i mean there's obviously a few differences and we try and get familiarized with with their equipment so their ejection procedures their some their seating their egress just so we've got a bit of a handle on if it was to occur um, and just some dangerous stuff you know what's on the aircraft that that may we may come in contact with so we have that liaison 
with any sort of visiting squadrons that come here, which makes our job a lot easier uh, to be able to cover them. What kind of equipment are you using it during the night? Is it NVGs? Or? No, we're not currently on NVG. We have, a, you'll see on the side of the aircraft, a, a big, uh, what we call a night sun. Nice. It's a, a big torch, essentially, yep. that, that's uh, 30 million candle power, and it lights up the area so we can descend down into the, in the black once uh, as a part of a visual approach. Um, into an area if we've got to rescue somebody. Takes a little bit of effort that one because it, you can get perspective issues, can't you? Well, we've got a crew of four, so you've got you know guys flying, guys out. We've got uh, handheld torches. We've actually got guys looking out from the back as well. So you've got lots of sets of eyes looking, uh, making sure we're not going to not going to hit anything while the pilots are actually flying the aircraft. So no use of fleur or anything like that. Uh, we do have a fleur. We have a fleur on, on on that aircraft. Yeah, yeah. Fleur fleur is good, but up here um, you can imagine um, it's a, it's another tool that we use. Um, they're not the be-all, end-all, but they are a good tool to have in your as, in your kit for sure. How many crew have you got to keep the two aircraft that running? Uh, the crew-wise, we have uh, two full crews here, so um, eight people um, plus an engineer uh, on site, and we're able to uh, to cover the whole exercise window with those two crews and two aircraft. Normally, Normally we have a single crew and single aircraft uh, requirement here at Tyndall, so um, yeah, we, we cover everything we need to normally with one crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I said, this is a high-profile exercise and. So it's not a 24-hour operation up here at the moment. It's only when they're operating. So in some cases, you have one aircraft, two crews per aircraft to be able to provide that coverage. Yeah, mainly for the exercise. I said the, the windows that we cover, as I said, are the normal flying windows plus anything outside that, that, that comes into, as in contingency, if, um, if there's any sort of accident at the ranges or anything like that, we, we're able to respond to that yep. as well. Wondering about your your flight and duty times. Well, that's why we we've got two crews. We yeah. couldn't really do it with one crew, and I said to allow for for everything that needs to be covered and to to stay within our flight and duty requirements. We have the two crews. So it's not it's not typical that you're operating both helicopters at no, once. No, no, it's not okay. a it's not a norm here at Tyndall. No. In terms of keeping up the operations and so on, what's the maintenance time on this particular aircraft versus flight hours? roughly I, I couldn't give you a figure on that but they are not a maintenance intensive aircraft they're you know flying to maintenance is, is quite low it's okay. um yeah they're very reliable um aircraft i noticed that lots of other uh, the, the ambulance victoria contractors sort of moved away from traditional suppliers of helicopters now and is but they're buying aw139s is are the days of the s76 numbered for this contract they are a very capable platform and and they have been for i mean we've had this contract here in tinnel for 25 years mm-hmm. you know lloyd chc bond uh, or, or you know now chc and they've been a very uh, good platform for that time and very capable you know like every helicopter they do have their limitations but for what we uh, we're contracted to they're, they're quite capable for that do you deploy the second helicopter here? Where does it come from and how do you backfill that, that vacancy? It's a spare. Okay. Basically, it's, it is a dedicated deployment helicopter, so it, mm-hmm. it basically follows exercise around. It's it's housed, for want of a better word, in Williamtown um, and maintained there on site, and then obviously it's ready to go and it'll fly to where it needs to be. Okay. So it's in addition to, to uh, our, um, um, our normal base requirement from, from all of the SAR bases around the country. So you said it takes about an hour and a half to get to Darwin. Um, yeah. What's the what's its typical transit speeds? Uh, cruise 130 knots. So uh, and that's what um, I mean. What you get is what you get at 130, depending on obviously the wind and everything else. Um, so yeah, it's about an hour and a quarter to Darwin. It's an hour to Bradshaw. It's 40 minutes to Delamere. Okay. And what's the typical duration that this this particular kind three of three hours? Okay. Yeah, three hour duration. But most missions are generally over in one to two. One and a half to, to two hours, yeah, okay. depending. And uh, what, if someone was looking for a career with CHC, 
um, either in the front or the back. What kind of experience and paths are we looking at? Well, basically, um, everything is on the, the CHC website. They give you all the minimum requirements that, that you need to, to join. And, and I, I suppose I can just uh, advise people to have a look. Um, and if they're interested, um, ask people in the know, get on the website, talk in forums, and then just sort of see what, what they've got to do to, to get on board. Like every aviation company, we're always looking for people and good people, and we're happy to take them on board. Do you tend to be ex-military? No, it's a, it's a good mixed bag of, of, uh, of people. You know, we've got a lot of ex-military from all three services and we've got guys that are just general aviation coming off the street. Mm-hmm. Same with um, from the back seat guys from the crewmen side. We've got guys that come from lifesaver background, engineering backgrounds to military aircrew. So it's a good, happy balance uh, of, of experience and life skill. Nobby, you've worked on the restoration of this magnificent F4 Corsair. Can you uh, step us through what's been involved in getting it to this point? Well, uh, when the owner got it in 1996 in Melbourne, it comes from uh, New Zealand, out of the museum. Uh, we bought it up here in 1996, uh, 1997, sorry, 1997, and uh, we restored it. It took us over 17 years to restore it. Did you pull it right apart and put it all back together? Yes, yes, we put it all the way down, you know, to basically every single bolt and whatever yeah. was necessary, you know, and okay. uh, uh, brought it back to the flying condition. So 17 years of time, and how many men worked on that? Oh, on and off, on and off, uh, up to four or five men, you know. It's uh, a hell of a lot of effort. It is, it is. Uh, you know, unlimited hours. If you asked me for the hours, I wouldn't know. <laughs> And uh, how is it to, you know, how's the feeling when uh, first flew? Oh! Nervous but excited? No, not really, not really. Uh, you know, it, 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 we were sure it's going to fly, take it this way. Yeah. You know, we, <laughs> you've, got, you've got to be positive, as simple as that, you know. It's, it's, it's not an easy task because of the spare parts and everything and bits and pieces and there's very few only around in the world or if there's anything around, everything else has to be made up and everything, you know, yeah. so it's quite difficult. Yeah, very difficult. To get, you can't just go and yeah, call up Chance Wharton and say, give us some parts. No, you can't. You, can. <laughs> oh, you can, but you're highly unsuccessful. You know? <laughs> so uh, well, it's flown about two or three times since restoration? It did 16 hours so far. Okay. Uh, it started actually, uh, or the, the post flight was 4th of May this year. So we got it up here 1st of May 1997, and so 17 years after, three days, seven years and three days after. It okay. took up in the air, and uh, yeah, it did about 16 hours now. And uh, so far, all right. Yeah. yeah, getting good good report, reports back from the pilot. Yeah, oh, all positive. That's always good. There's nothing negative, isn't it? Excellent. And uh, where to from now with it? Well, uh, we're going to do a few more hours. I want to see about uh, about 25, 30 hours on it, on about 25 hours minimum, and then we're going to fit the drop tanks on and see if the transfer the fuel transfer works and everything and hopefully somewhere mid-october we're going to leave down to type to the owner that's Excellent. where the owner lives down yeah. to type yeah yes. melbourne type you've been down there oh i live down in melbourne so. oh well you know you yeah. know judy pay and whatever yeah yeah there. thanks very much is there anything else you'd like to say no not really <laughs> <laughs> no i'm not a good man for medias or whatever no, that's fine right? that's fine no that's it oh, thanks no, very much for coming on the show not a problem okay Ever dreamt of flying in a warbird? 
Why not strap yourself in for pure excitement and let a supercharged radial engine take you up to speeds of 200 knots? Dare to push the boundaries as you experience up to 6.5G, fully aerobatic or simply take in the spectacular scenery of Western Port Bay, French and Phillip Islands with 360-degree views. Come and join us at Adventure Wings in Turidan and take flight in our Nanchang CJ6A. Plane Crazy Down Under listeners get the 15-minute flight for only $250. That's a saving of $30. Call us on 0418-525-658 or visit our website, adventurewings.com.au. Flying every weekend and other times by appointment. Adventure Wings. Leave the ordinary behind. As pilots, we're always looking for ways to improve our proficiency and skills. And one of the best ways to achieve that is using a flight school dedicated to advanced skills training. In the Sydney area, that choice is the Australian Aerobatic Academy. From ab initio, advanced handling techniques, upset recovery training, right through to full aerobatic ratings. The Australian Aerobatic Academy provides thorough and professionally delivered courses to suit every pilot. And with bases at Bankstown and Wollongong, they've got Sydney covered. Go to aeroacademy.com.au to find out more or call 0404 065 201. The Australian Aerobatic Academy, taking your proficiency to the next flight level. Do you have the need, the need for speed? Jet Ride Australia is a premier fighter experience in the country and the perfect gift for every budding top gun. From mild to wild, Jet Ride tailors each flight individually to give you the mind-blowing ride of your life. To make your dream a reality, check out jetride.com.au slash PCDU or Aussies can call 1300 554 876. Jet Ride. Forget the rest, fly with the best. Hi, this is Max Flight. Besides producing the Airplane Geeks podcast, I run the 30,000 Feet Aviation Directory. If you have a look at the Aviation Podcast page, you'll find links to literally dozens of aviation podcasts. Go have a look and listen to a few. Then come back here and get the real deal at Plane Crazy Down Under. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. And welcome back, folks. And I've got ATC Ben with me, and uh, we've got Ryan Campbell. How are you, Ryan? I'm well, thanks, guys. How are you? We're very well. Where is now? You know, every time I speak to you, mate, we always have to ask this question. It's almost a tradition. What part of the world do we speak to you from tonight? I'm uh, at home. I'm I'm at Mum and Dad's house uh, down at Marimbula on the Sapphire Coast, just kind of soaking up the last few days before I venture off up north. So it's uh, it's good to be home. Yeah, I bet it is. Well, you know, we, we, we say where are you? Of course, we bumped into you last year at Ozfly and, and, and met you in person. So there you go. What have you been up to, Ryan? Uh, you, you've been a very, very busy guy and looks like uh, some things are looking up for you in terms of employment. And um, yeah, we're just uh, wondering how you're going since you set your uh, world record last year. Yeah, it's been about uh, 12 months now. So this time last year, I would have been somewhere throughout Europe, uh, heading down, thinking about Egypt and, and the issues around there and, and where we go and what we do. So Definitely this time last year, life was a little bit more stressful. But uh, as you said, it's been a year and it come to an end. And I spent uh, a good couple of months there 
traveling around and talking, sharing the story. And uh, before I knew it, I had a job and I was venturing off to Newcastle uh, to fly chieftains doing aeromedical work up there. And at the same time, while I kind of you know continued on with my flying, learned to fly something with two propellers instead of one, I took on the, the task of uh, writing Born to Fly. And that's been its own adventure, I suppose, from that, that moment through to now when it's on the shelves and, and out there and, and um, we've nearly got the publicity to it wrapped up. So that side of things with the book has been a wild roller coaster ride and it comes to an end around about now. We'll, we'll have the story out there. But uh, as you said, pack my bags on the weekend and, and venture off to a new job with uh, our Steve Paget and Aeromill Pacific, the Cessna aircraft distributor for Australia based at the Sunshine Coast. So a very exciting job there where I'll... Uh, I'll have uh, lots of little things to do. Now, of course, Aeromill is a Cessna dealer, as you mentioned. And, of course, we've just heard ATC Ben thud to the floor because, uh, you know, he's a, he's a Cirrus fanatic and he, he wants to talk to you all about flying Cirruses. Is it Cirruses or Cirri? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not too biased, but um, yeah, look, it'll be very exciting to be with Cessna. They obviously played a, a part in the flight when I when I actually headed over to Kansas to try and secure a Cessna for the flight. But as ATC Ben will be obviously happy to hear, I ended up in the SR22, and and I'm an absolutely huge fan of the Cirrus, uh, having spent enough time in them to to really learn what they can and, and cannot do. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting, Ryan. Before we started recording here, we were talking about who had more experience and uh, uh, we, we sort of thought perhaps you had more hours, but um, perhaps you, Ben might have more landings than you'd have. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, I think the average leg that I've spent in a Cirrus is probably eight to ten hours um, with a, a heavy takeoff in the beginning and a, uh, a very welcome landing at the end. Uh, so I, I definitely think that uh, ATC Ben's probably got a few more landings under his belt. I think Ryan's a lot keener than I am. Uh, I love the aeroplane to bits, but I still like getting out of it after you know, for a four-hour <laughs> leg, uh, doing that uh, that huge leg to the West Coast there. And I was just cringing when you were talking to the boys about it. I'm going, my God, I couldn't be in the aeroplane for that long. Yeah, look, I think yeah, I think it come down to adrenaline in the end. Uh, you know, you look at most aircraft, very few have a ferry tank fitted. I've never seen a ferry tank or, or been involved with a ferry tank before this flight. And uh, because of that, I mean, every flight that I've taken on, the longest was probably three hours. I'd never flown an airplane over three hours. And uh, for me on the flight, if I looked at the little screen there and it told me that I was about three hours away, I was starting to, uh, you know, get the empty rubbish and bottles and put them in a bag and start to brief the approach plates into whatever airport or country I was arriving at. That was uh, pretty much time to, to do your pre-landing checks. I thought I was nearly home. In terms of your airmanship, Ryan, uh, you're 12 months on. You've had a lot of time to think about it, obviously a lot of time to talk about it. And uh, you said you've made the, the move, obviously, into twin-engine aircraft now. How has that experience changed the way you approach flying in general? Uh, well, I've always been very serious about flying. I, you know, we all know that complacency is uh, something that can't be in your flying and that's non-negotiable. And um, we've all seen examples of what happens when you do have complacency in your flying. But uh, for me, Team World Flight taught me that, you know, probably that fact, but to an extreme. Uh, now I found myself, as I said, up flying chieftains. I was in a new area of flying. I was uh, aeromedical work out of Cessnock. I was up and down quite a lot every day. I was flying two crew. So for a long time, I'd spent uh, time flying around on my own. So here I was, you know, with other pilots and, and other, you know, nurses and crew kind of hopping around the countryside. So I think, yeah, it gave me a lot of uh, 
insight into just how uh, careful and, and uh, precise you need to be every day. And and as I mean, you've you've carried it on. I've carried it on into my flying in the Chieftains. I'll carry it on into my next job, which will be everything from little single engine Cessnas through to citations as an FO. But um, no matter what you fly, whether it's a, a drifter or whether it's a, uh, an A380, I think we've all got to have a similar attitude with safety being you know right at the top of that list and, and highlighted in bold, all that kind of stuff. Did you find it um, interesting? I guess getting back up and flying with other people in the aircraft or was it almost a relief to have somebody else to talk to? Oh, no, it's definitely a relief. I think, um, you know, I, I say now that I wouldn't really travel on my own again. I think I've done enough of that. I don't know how many moments there were during my flight where, you know, I've reflected on this now when you actually get to sit down and go through that mental process of putting what happened onto onto paper. But I saw some things that I still can't, you know, comprehend. I'm, I'm sorting photos and there's pictures of glaciers or deserts or, you know, the white cliffs of Dover and castles and uh, volcanoes, everything you can imagine. And, and I mean, ATC Ben will know, you know what it's like to sit inside a Cirrus and look out those windows. And I was seeing things outside of those exact windows that I couldn't explain, uh, that I couldn't, you know, it was so surreal. And, you know, short of Bob the life raft who didn't really say much, I didn't have anyone to talk to. Uh, I didn't have anyone to share that moment with. So I love getting in an airplane with other people and, and sharing that kind of you know, love for flying and, and that perspective you get. So I'm uh, I'm happy with flying around with uh, other people for a while now. We'll see what happens in the future. Though. Of course, you're still a very young man and uh, you've got your whole career ahead of you. But, um, you know, I, I wonder, some people sort of go off into doing stuff like flight instruction, stuff like that. Other people sort of have their eyes set on the airlines. Um, they're, they're very different, um, you know, ways of working, aren't they, when it comes to aviation? So uh, maybe you've had a lot of time to think about what might suit you and, and this opportunity that you've, you're picking up with Aeromill, as you said, is certainly going to give you you know, a good chance to have a look at both sides of that spectrum. Yeah, I think it gives you everything, everything I've ever wanted, you know, an insight into everything other than airlines. Uh, that's something that I think I'll attack later on in life. Uh, you know, there's always an opportunity there to do that. But I'll get a look at flight training and, and corporate aviation also, uh, staying in single engines and uh, demoing aircraft and, and selling aircraft. Then more to the business side of things, looking at youth and, and, uh, and how we can get young kids into, you know, a little 150 and and, uh, you know, into their flight training, which is really exciting. The other passion I have, which is beyond uh, Airmill Pacific, is warbirds. And I've always had that. I've always, you know, it was uh, encouraged when I flew throughout the USA, meeting people like Clay Lacey and, oh, yeah. and seeing what happens, as you know, at places like Oshkosh. I was absolutely, you know, inspired to to try and take on a challenge to break into Warbirds somehow, whether that be here or overseas. So that's another challenge to to keep on the horizon as well. Is you know, everyone's dreams to fly a P fifty one, and safe to say, I'm uh, I'm no different to to all those guys. I believe Paul Bennett gave you a ride in uh, one of his Warbirds recently. Absolutely. I mean, I was uh, very very lucky. I was uh, in a house, a rental property, and uh, if you had an engine failure off the the main runway there at Maitland heading towards the north and you, you put the airplane down in that paddock that you'll see under your nose. Well, well that was uh, my backyard. So I was right under the airport and I spent some time down with Paul and, and the guys at, uh, at Paul Bennett Air Shows. And look, I mean, short of flying the pits, I was able to, to do lots of amazing things with Paul. I flew an L5 stints and took that for a fly on my own and uh, it still looked like an airplane when I was finished. Uh, he taught me in the yak I took on uh, – uh, Yak 52 and, and learnt uh, about the radial and, and uh, you know, that never gets old, uh, starting the radial and, and breathing in the smoke as it pours around the airplane. And, and then aerobatics, you know, aerobatics, uh, another passion, obviously, go hand in hand with a lot of warbird flying. And then on top of all that, to head down to Wings over Illawarra. 
in an Avenger. I don't, you know. So there was some amazing opportunities up there uh, through different people, especially Paul, which is fantastic. Did you get any stick time on the Avenger? I was uh, there. It was three positions in that airplane. So Paul was up the front. He had hold of the stick and the throttle and uh, I think the 2,000 horsepower or whatever that was uh, <laughs> attached to the front of that airplane, something ridiculous, a bit more than the Cirrus. But I was back in a navigator position, so I had uh, more room there than I knew what to do with. I could have brought all my friends and had a bit of a joy flight in the back there. But I sat there and looked out the window as we went down Victor 1 and, and took in a site that not many people get to see, which is you know Sydney Harbour Bridge and the CBD from the wings of a, an Avenger, you know, from a warbird and uh, and then there's obviously the gunner position in the back but uh, i'm uh, not skinny enough to to get up in there so look it was a phenomenal uh, phenomenal opportunity to to take i'm taking note of this um so you know when ryan gets checked out in a warbird i'll be uh, you know at the top of that queue there stand, standing right behind <laughs> steve <laughs> we're pretty lucky grant's not on the line with us for this interview mate or he'd be uh, he'd be trying to get right to the top of that list i think uh, yeah, look, I mean, it's a hard thing to break into in Australia, but uh, there's lots of opportunities out there. And, you know, I think I've hopefully shown to lots of young guys out there what you can do if you, you stick your mind to it. So I'll set off on that next adventure along with work and other things and, and see where we end up. Now, Ryan, of course, you've been around doing lots of interesting things in the in the year or so uh, since. Um, of course, you've met some really famous people. Of course, you've met Ray and Grant. I mean, you know, we're really famous. But um, any, anybody else that's, you know, reasonably well-known on the world scene that you might have rubbed shoulders with recently? Uh, yeah, there was. Uh, a few little different events here and there, but uh, I was dressed up in my pilot uniform. I was on my way out to, to Cessnock Airport one day, uh, driving the ute, all ready to go to work. And uh, the assistant to the Governor General called and invited me along to the government house to attend a, a very small, uh, kind of discreet function for Prince William and Princess Kate uh, for the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. Uh, I was absolutely gobsmacked you're on the floor that they'd even thought of me uh next thing i know i bought a suit and i turned up at uh, government house in canberra and and parked the ute down in the garden i walked up through and and wandered into a room full of famous faces and i was just in awe at the fact that they uh, had me come along and not only that but um i was able to have a good chat with prince william obviously as a, a pilot and along with that he's a, a rescue pilot so he really found the fact about the overwater crossings absolutely mind-blowing and he did say flippin' heck in his sentence, which I think for Prince William is about as uh, as far as he can go in his uh, verbal, uh, <laughs> I suppose, expression. But look, it was a phenomenal night. Um, it was the absolute other end of the spectrum compared to that young kid who was too scared to, to have mum and dad know about this stupid idea of flying around the world he had. So it's a pretty cool comparison to, to what happened and and, and how Team World Flight, you know, where it went and, and who heard about it and who it affected and who it inspired. So that was a very interesting night, I must say. And, uh, of course, uh, as the, you know, the Prince is, as you said, a rescue pilot. Of course, um, you know, he's a helicopter pilot. Does, does he – I don't know. Does he have any time in fixed wing? I suppose um, they'd probably do all sorts of basic uh, fixed wing training in the Royal Air Force. I'm not actually too sure. I'm not too sure. No, I don't know. I do know, though, that he was very, very keen and eager. Uh, they'd been in Australia for 19 days. This was – uh, the night before they were to leave. Uh, so they were obviously very worn out. And I could tell he was just eager to chat as a pilot, not as Prince William. Yep. And uh, he was very, very keen. He said, uh, next time I do it, it had to be in a helicopter and it had to be with him, <laughs> well, <laughs> which it- I won't hold my breath for that. But it was, you know, it was a, a pretty cool thing to have someone like that take a, an interest. And it shows that um, 
it doesn't matter who you are. If you're a pilot, you're on a, a common playing field, you know, a level ground with, with other pilots in the way of conversation and, and uh, just having a chat. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, um, it's interesting too, because obviously uh, the Royal Family very heavily involved in charity work. And, um, you know, we've talked a lot about you going off and doing similar sorts of things. And, you know, I hesitate to use the word now, now that you're a bit older as a youth ambassador, but I know you're very interested in doing stuff like that. So uh, I guess um, that's a way to segue into talking about tours around the country that you might have done. Have you been talking to a lot of schools, a lot of school kids? Yeah, look, I, I think when we first sat down and said, right, I will take on on Team World Flight, we had a number of objectives, but one objective for me stood out and, and it wasn't the world record. It wasn't anything uh, like that. It was more the fact that I wanted to get young kids uh, inspired and, and into the aeroplane, making them realize that, you know, at 15, you can fly an RA aeroplane solo. At 16, you can fly a GA aeroplane solo. At 17, you can have a private license and at 18, you can have a commercial and explaining how that can be done, how it can be afforded uh, and, and how that's something that seems so unrealistic is actually quite realistic. And I think that's a problem that young people just don't understand. It's uh, a lack of education, not a lack of uh, willingness to get out there and have a go. So uh, what we wanted to do was an Australian tour when we arrived home from Team World Flight. We wanted to, I purely wanted to take the Cirrus. Uh, it was a very good looking aeroplane when it went. We put a lot of work. I had a lot of people help out in making it look uh, as good as it did. And we represented the sponsors in the best way we could. But unfortunately, uh, like any anything, the complex side of funding something like that uh, you know there has to be support from the Australian aviation industry to be able to take that on and, and unfortunately we didn't have the support that I hoped uh, the Cirrus then had to go back to its owner and the stickers were taken off so we've lost that opportunity with the Cirrus to to, to travel around Australia but we've just had to work with what we've got we've molded uh, different areas here and there we've done a lot with the book tour in the way of talking to young kids uh, all over the countryside in regards to what they're doing where they're at and what what is possible but we've got lots of plans for the future uh, of which a few will keep under our hat but plans that we could hopefully find the support for uh, I'd like to see everyone pull together whether it be uh, small organizations whether it be large organizations businesses individuals anyone with a, a passion for flying in Australia there's not many of us in comparison to other places around the world so I think to make something successful to have something out there where young kids you know have a pathway in front of them to get into an airplane we all need to pull together and make something happen. So uh, hopefully we can get an idea out there that everyone will jump on board with, but we'll see how the, the next 12 months work out. We'll uh, keep chipping away at that end goal. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in, in the chapter two of your book is actually um, entitled A Passion and a Goal. And I think that's a good way to put it, isn't it? Set a goal, but also you've got to inspire that, you know, get that sort of passion going with people. And so many kids will look to the skies and, you know, particularly young, younger kids and perhaps look with a bit of wonder about how something like that can stay in the air. So it's a matter of harnessing that and getting kids to set goals and hopefully uh, setting a goal in aviation. Absolutely. I think the, the best thing in the world is a young kid standing in an airport fence or up against a glass in, in an airport terminal or at an air show and, and they're holding a model aeroplane and they're, you know, they're running around the room pretending they're a pilot and, and to them they're not playing with a toy. They're actually flying that airplane just like the real ones outside the window and, and up in the sky. So flying's really magic. Uh, unfortunately, that's dwindled away a little bit with uh, airline travel and, and how uh, the industry works now. But, look, I hope we can use Team World Flight but also to use guys like yourself and, uh, guys like Paul Bennett and Matt Hall and, and people within the industry who are out there and promoting and talking and, and doing great things and, 
and everyone pull together, everyone put their heads together and, and um, we'll see what we can do. Now, of course, um, ATC, Ben, now you'd be wanting to know there's all, lots of other aspects of the aviation industry and, of course, uh, Ben, you've proved that because you've got a commercial pilot's licence and uh, you're also an air traffic controller. Do you think we could, uh, you know, perhaps entice Ryan to get into air traffic control? I absolutely reckon that, yeah, we could uh, probably get Ryan into uh, ATC. I don't know if he's uh, going to want to give up the flying gig, though, uh, with... Uh, <laughs> There, there are some mornings where I do do miss the view. Uh, although that that said, I am swapping the radar screen for a window soon, so uh, that'll uh, improve the outlook a little bit uh, from from my side of the desk. But that's uh, uh, one thing that uh, Ryan brought up, which uh, is for the, the generation these days, they're, they're going to miss out on. I mean, something that uh, Steve and I got the, the chance of doing is, you know, back back in those days, we could ride up the front during the flight. And uh, and go and see the cockpit, and that wasn't such a big deal. And uh, now, with uh, all the security rules and regulations, uh, I mean, you know, as an air traffic controller, we we get jump seat rides on certain airlines, but it it still takes you know six seven pages of paperwork just to get us up there. And um, and we're air traffic controllers, so uh, unfortunately, gone are those days where the kids could just ride up the front for the landing, and you know, stay up here, not a problem. But uh, we need some. You know, people like Ryan and Matt Hall and and that to uh, inspire the kids to, to point out that, uh, you know, put aviation into the spotlight as a career choice rather than it sort of gets locked away behind the cockpit door and behind the security fence and, and it's harder to access uh, as a, as a you know, career choice these days. Yeah, absolutely. And, and along the lines of ATC, I actually have a friend uh, who has just finished his ATC trip training uh, down there in Melbourne and he's now based at Mackay but uh, after hearing the stories of air traffic control I think uh, I think I'll stick to flying but um, it's uh, obviously a very exciting career for him and, and that's the other thing we can yeah we don't just promote flying uh, as a pilot we can promote uh, the air traffic control side of things promote the engineering side of things we need to promote the industry as a whole and uh, I think you know the only way to do that as we've all said is to pull together so uh, I actually was six years old, as it, you know, as was written in the book, and, and taken up to the flight deck of an aeroplane, and that's what started it. Uh, started it for me. Uh, the problem is we can't change the fact we're not allowed to do that anymore. So instead, uh, we, you know, we can complain about asset cards and we complain about security and complain about um, budget airlines and what it's like to travel these days. But in the end, uh, we've got to uh, change with the times and, and you know try and find a program or an approach that. Uh, takes those things away and, and brings out, highlights the magic of flying and, and not so much the reality of, of what it's become. So I think you're, yeah, you're dead right there. Well, one way to uh, promote uh, all this sort of uh, positive talk about flying is to read your book, Ryan, Born to Fly. What's it like to write a book? Um, <laughs> I've just finished three weeks of travelling around and um, they say, I shouldn't say it, but I always tell people in a bookshop, uh, I don't really read a lot of books uh, today. Uh, two aviation magazines turned up on the table, which is the highlight of my month. You know, I'll sit down and read those cover to cover a couple of times. But uh, short of reading books on, say, Bert Hinkler or Kingston Smith, I'm not a I'm not a big bookworm. During school, I dropped out of uh, my advanced English class because I spent too long at Oshkosh the air show, and <laughs> I arrived home to a bunch of novels to catch up on. So instead of reading those novels, I dropped down into standard English and I read aviation magazines in class instead. And you know, that was, that was my life. So <laughs> to be given the opportunity to write a book was pretty daunting. Uh, it really was a challenge in itself. Uh, and 
I think all I could do was take the feedback from the blogs that were written during the flight and, and try and uh, continue on and, and write the whole story from the beginning to the end in that way, uh, in that kind of easy to read, just typical, you know, I, I'm not an author. Uh, I'm a pilot who wrote a book. So pretty amazing experience, a long-winded experience, but one that paid off in the end. I think, you know, we've got it there. We've, we've, I've been able to happily uh, put that story onto paper and I think we've, I've passed on the lessons that I wanted to pass on and, uh, and all the little stories and moments that I may have forgotten or, or haven't been given the opportunity to tell to everyone. So hopefully it's a, a good read. I'm uh, up to Chapter 14 in the book and I'm, I'm really loving it. It's talking about um, the romance of Van Nuys, it's called, and uh, talking about going in there to the – of course, if any of body uh, who listens to this show, and we would expect anyone who listens to this show to have watched the movie uh, One Six Right – uh, talks about that airport. Describe for our listeners what it's like to go and be in that environment. I mean, I've, I've never been there, but it just sounds like the most wonderful place aviation-wise. Absolutely. You know, you're spot on. Uh, I also say that you're not a pilot or you're not an air traffic controller or, you know, you're not a real aviation enthusiast until you've watched One Six Right. And uh, I, sh- I should have commissions for sales of that DVD because I think <laughs> I do quite a good job. Uh, but I, uh, whenever I was, you know, from the very beginning, uh, just being inspired and dreaming of flying around the world. Uh, you know, I was watching One Six Right. I'd always uh, get up from watching that DVD and walk away ready to take on the world, you know, and, and venture off and go flying. And I just had this amazing feeling every time. And I still get that right now watching it. I've worn out uh, the first DVD and, and I'm on to the second now. And I've, I've watched it so many times. So to have the faces of Clay Lacey and, and the Runway One Six Right and to know the history and, and all of that, uh, to know all that before you get there is pretty amazing. But then to have flown from Hawaii to California, uh, to have found the coast, to uh, have stressed my whole way there due to winds and, and all sorts of issues we had. You know, I was in the airplane for 15 hours and to touch down on runway 16 right, to listen to the ATIS, to hear that that's the active runway. Uh, I was clear to visual approach. I couldn't see the runway, so I was vectored around behind a goal stream. This is uh, around about 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night, uh, their time. Uh, so it was well and truly dark. To be vectored around and to finally get down and, and touch down, I taxied away. I was given directions down. I followed a car with flashing lights and I brought the Cirrus to a stop pretty much under the wing of Jim Carrey's private jet. <laughs> and it was all really hard to take in. The, the next day was uh, phenomenal, having lunch with Clay Lacey, someone with you know 50,000 flying hours, yet he had uh, the interest and the eagerness to hear about my story when all I wanted to do was ask him about the stories I'd heard about him. So <laughs> pretty pretty surreal to think that it happened, I must say. Something I wish everyone could experience at least once. It's a fantastic place for aviation, that's for sure. Okay, well, um, we want to really uh, promote the book here. It's a wonderful book, Born to Fly. It's uh, printed by Harlequin. And uh, I guess, Ryan, the best place to uh, get a link to it if they want to buy it, if they don't, people don't want to buy it uh, from a bookshop, is to go to your website, which is still running, of course, teenworldflight.com. Yeah, that's it. You can uh, find links through to uh, – it's on iTunes, it's on Kindles and e-readers. Uh, it's even made its way into BW. So uh, there's, it's all the way – it's out there uh, on the shelves and, and uh, ready to be read and, and hopefully it uh, inspires other young guys and or anyone, you know, anyone of any age in the same way that, you know, one thinks right and inspire me. 
and uh, who knows who will take on the next adventure. Well, we should mention, of course, that um, other people have attempted that adventure. In fact, uh, I believe your uh, world record has just recently been pipped. It has. It has. A young American named Matt Guthmiller uh, broke the record by about nine days, uh, So, which was, I, in my eyes, uh, super exciting that it come down to such a fine line. Uh, but in the same way, it, you know, even though it come down to a fine line, what Matt did was all the decisions he made uh, in my eyes, you know, from what I know, we're still safe. Uh, there was no race to get home. Uh, the record took a, I suppose, sat on the back burner while safety remained number one priority. And, and that's what we need. We've seen it over the last few weeks uh, with different incidents here and there, unfortunately, that safety needs to remain the first priority and, and whatever comes as the, uh, I suppose, a consequence of that or as a result of that is is fantastic. And, and for Matt, that was a record. So very exciting. Uh, and we'll see how long that lasts and, and who decides to take it on next. You are the uh, the source point now for uh, for these world record people. I mean, I know you were talking to Matt about his attempt. And uh, and um, so yeah, you, know, you, Jack, Matt, uh, you're all together there uh, as the uh, the new cadre of, of uh, world rounders. And uh, I'm sure the next person to make an attempt will be knocking on your door. And there's, I mean, to be honest, there is so, so many. In 2008, the youngest person to fly solo around the world was 37. It jumped down to 23, and since then, six people under the age of 23 have been successful and uh, in a solo flight around the world. And uh, I, that that has uh, benefits and consequences. The benefits is that it, you know it's in the media now, and you know we're talking about it right now, and, and we're getting the word out there, and, and hopefully inspiring people who've always wanted to do it to take on the challenge. But at the same time, in a way. It, I suppose it can uh, potentially take away from the seriousness of what it is. Uh, and I think, you know, people have the uh, the ability to look at it and say, well, if all these young kids did it recently, which, you know, it's not many being only six, but it gives, a, I suppose, a false sense of maybe the fact that it looks easy. And in the end, it's not. And, you know, we saw that two weeks ago in the Pacific, uh, having lost a, a father and a son out there on a round-the-world flight. And I think, you know, it's great. I hope I hope the number of young guys doing it uh, inspire people to want to take it on. But then also, uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, incidents uh, as as happened a couple of weeks ago also highlight the risk. So there has to be a kind of a happy uh, balance in between the two. But look, absolutely. I mean, if people want to do it, get in touch. And uh, I think we're all always willing to uh, to encourage the next person to have a crack. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Ryan, as always, it's a pleasure to talk to you, mate. Once again, folks, the book is called Born to Fly. Uh, best place to find it if you're looking online is at teenworldflight.com or in all good bookstores. And I guess you could find it on the uh, Harlequin website as well. Ryan, um, we'll look forward to catching up with you again soon, mate. And you can tell us what it's like to fly a citation. <laughs> I'm very, very eager. So uh, I'll, I'll definitely be in touch and let you know. But uh, yeah, thank you for chatter. I look forward to talking again soon. Welcome back, folks. Well, see, now I told you, Grant, I told you Ryan Campbell's a pretty busy guy. And uh, thanks to ATC Ben for dropping in on that one. We did want to have him in on the recording today, but uh, he's too busy uh, off back at ATC school uh, learning to be a tower controller <laughs> as we record this. So uh, he couldn't be with us. But uh, I tell you what, we're going to have to shoehorn him back into the show mm-hmm. so he can bring us all up to date about what he's up to. Some real interesting stuff there. And uh, yeah, make sure you get out there and support Ryan Campbell and have a read of his book. Um, they did send us out a preview copy and uh, it's got some really good stories in there. And uh, I tell you what, um, if you, you know, you're a young person and you're trying to focus on a goal, this is a, a good example of how exactly you can do that. So I yep. think uh, Ryan's going to be an ambassador for that sort of thing for many years to come. Totally agree, mate. And uh, it's definitely um, a great book for goal setting and uh, focus and uh, determination. I really enjoyed reading it. It's a good read, gets through reasonably quickly. And I found like Matt Hall's book, 
great for helping you uh, set goals and focus and things like that while also telling a good yarn. So uh, highly recommended uh, Ryan's book. I really enjoyed reading it and uh, it's got a welcome place up in my um, book collection. And of course, uh, yeah, I just need to uh, organize a time to catch up with him. I was kind of sad that I couldn't meet up with him. It was while I was in Darwin. Uh, Otherwise, I would have been right there with my pen saying, please autograph this. All you need to do, Ryan, is now when you're demonstrating, I don't know, a citation perhaps, you can just fly down here to Melbourne and have lunch with us. Yeah, come on down, man. Well, uh, I guess that's uh, that's everything for the interviews in the show. Now, Grant, a couple of quick shout-outs here. Um, we should offer a shout-out here to uh, Paul Burfitt uh, from Project 64. We really want to thank him for uh, coming on board and uh, helping us with some projects. That Airbus project would not have happened without him, and uh, it was a real education for us. And uh, it was it was really good that uh, you know he came out and helped us with that. Uh, we certainly hope we can work with him a bit more again in the future, but uh, 64.com.au is his website, and uh, he does all sorts of interesting media stuff over there. So uh, if you looking for you know if you're in the corporate world and you're looking for corporate video production uh, he's certainly the man yep. to uh, to do that absolutely um, yeah. a really a real education for us getting out there and uh, seeing how actually professionals do it rather than just <laughs> being airplane geeks like us but uh yeah, it was really good, and Airbus were happy too, so good thing for our little business here for the future, hopefully. Oh, definitely, and uh, also thanks to Paul for uh, the uh, wallpapers he set up for phones and tablets. So yes. he uh, grabbed a, um, a few of the uh, stills from when we were playing with the Airbus A350. We've released two of them. The third one will be coming out pretty soon now, and uh, this could be the start of something new. Um, Andrew McLaughlin said that uh, if I want to use a couple of his uh, pitch black photos, uh, he's more than happy for us to work with those. So, uh, yeah, we may wind up with a few more PCDU branded uh, wallpapers. I know I've got a couple of ballooning shots I might do the same kind of thing with. Uh, so yeah, thanks Paul. Great idea and uh, let's see if we can uh, spin off some more stuff for everyone to enjoy. Absolutely and you can go into our website playingcrazydownunder.com and you can find all of those uh, PCDU branded uh, wallpapers for your tablets or your smartphones. I've got them sitting on mine. Grant, I think you might have one or two on yours mm. on your 24 or so different mobile yeah. devices you've carted <laughs> over here to the studio. So yeah, they, they come up really well. So uh, yeah, it's, um, you know we've quite a few downloads of those already. So uh, they're free folks. Uh, come and download them, put them on your uh, tablet or your portable device and uh, you know promote the show and it looks good too yeah they're very funky and uh, also thanks to Maddie the Airplane Geeks listener um, he gave a reference to the project to keep Vulcan X-Ray Hotel 558 still flying I believe at the end of this season they're looking at mothballing it and it won't be flying anymore which is a real tragic mm. shame um, especially as we've just seen some amazing videos recently of uh, the Vulcan flying with the uh, Lancasters and uh, various other shots the Vulcan with the uh, Red Arrows things like that so uh, uh, you can go to their website, www.vulcantothesky.org. So, yeah, I agree. It's an excellent project. And uh, next time I've got some spare shekels, I'll be trying to send them their way. Vulcantothesky.org. Now, Grant, uh, just as we come to the towards the end of the show, we also want to mention our Tyab Air Show DVD. I think the last time we put an episode out, it was just about ready to come into production. It has been released now. Um, we sold lots of copies of them. Uh, that's being uh, handled through the Peninsula Aero Club down at uh, Tyab Airport there, so pac.asn.au. Uh, have a look at their website. It's about, uh, I think, $25 or thereabouts they were selling it for. And uh, we're really, really happy. It did, as I mentioned in the last show, take quite a long time to uh, get out, but it comes uh, neatly packaged up um, all, all night. Nicely printed. It's not just some thing we're throwing together. Our uh, video uh, director Stephen Pam has done a huge amount of work on this in particular. It's just come out really, really well. 
really happy with it. And uh, we hope, uh, you know, that we know that the people that have bought it have all given us positive feedback. So we're pretty humbled about that. I think uh, we've learned a lot from that too, Grant. So I think uh, <laughs> we certainly uh, seems to be you know, that if people want to see more video, not just uh, hear the audio interview. So I think that's something we're going to have to look at going forward. But uh, I would just say to people, and you can tell by the uh, slow release rate of the uh, podcast this year, um, there's only so many hours in the day and uh, it mm. does uh, take up a lot of work to do that sort of stuff. But we think it's well worth it. So uh, uh, just do a Google search for Peninsula Aero Club down there at Tyab. Uh, get a hold of them and I'm sure they've got plenty of copies still that they can uh, get printed off. And who knows, Grant, maybe we can do a second print run of them if they pr- prove popular enough. We'll see how it runs with that. Peninsula Aero Club are running the um, the distribution and sales. You can actually find them at Skylines. I've definitely seen them in the live there. That's uh, Skylines Pilot Shop at Moorabbin. And uh, once uh, we see that come up on their website as well, I'll be uh, chucking a link to that on our uh, Facebook feed and also on our homepage. The DVDs come through great. The uh, air-to-air footage, especially when the uh, F-18 and the Mustang were doing the heritage formation, uh, absolutely awesome and blew people away when they saw it. Uh, Stephen Pam's done an excellent job putting all that together. Uh, we've supplied uh, copies of the DVD to uh, some of our friends in the RAF and uh, yeah, they've all been really wrapped with it as well. Um, we also gave them some links just to the F-18 bit so they could uh, have them on, on their computers if they wanted. Really good stuff and uh, yeah, highly recommended. Basically, if you go and buy it, you're helping to support Peninsula Aero Club, the people who put on the show, and uh, yeah, that helps ensure that every two years there's a fantastic tyre air show uh, that uh, just keeps getting better and better every time. So, uh, of course, the more that sell also uh, helps promote us. But that's always a good yeah. thing, mate. It's always a good thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Cool. So, yeah, get on out there and feel free to email us if you're uh, having some hassles trying to find it. We'll see what we can do to help you out. All right, no worries. Now, Grant, we're heading off overseas, but we're not heading off overseas together. Whereabouts are you off? Uh, This weekend, I'm off to New Zealand. Uh, The Wings Over New Zealand Forum are having one of their meetups. They generally do them every year. Uh, Dave Homewood, who runs the forum and runs the Wings Over New Zealand show, uh, the aviation podcast from New Zealand, he uh, puts a heck of a lot of effort into organising this. And uh, it's going to be at Ardmore Aerodrome and uh, there's a bunch of folks getting together there. They've got some amazing speakers coming along. Uh, you can, of course, find out more of that by looking up the Wings Over New Zealand forum, and you'll find that on, online. It's uh, rnzaf.proboards.com, I believe is the URL. Yeah, absolutely, Grant. That looks uh, looks like that's where it takes you. And Dave Homewood, of course, the Wings Over New Zealand podcast. Gee, he does some fantastic podcasts, some just amazing interviews. You know, Grant, I think we should take credit and say we taught him everything he knows, but uh, I don't think that's the case, actually. No, uh, he does no. a really, really good job. And uh, Grant, it's, uh, it's good that actually he invited us both to go over there. But coincidentally, Grant, uh, I can't go because I'm jetting off to the United States for a family holiday. Oh, and coincidentally, to cover the Red Bull Air Race in <laughs> Las Vegas. Oh, geez. Yeah, once again, he's seeing a Red Bull Air Race, and once again, I'm... I'm missing it. So this will be the third one in a row that he's been to that I haven't. So <laughs> yeah, you'll be over there going, Viva Oz Vegas, and I'll be back here crying. Absolutely. Now, uh, our, our US correspondent and uh, resident historian, David Vanderhoof, uh, also from the Airplane Geeks podcast, uh, of, of course, is also going to be uh, joining me there in Las Vegas. And, uh, you know, hopefully um, it's going to be a great race. Uh, Matt Hall, probably in the last race there in Fort Worth, probably didn't have the result. It was looking pretty good at the start, actually. I think he qualified uh, first or second, I think, in. but uh, by the time he finished, I think he came sixth. So probably not the result he was looking for, but uh, positive as always, uh, Matt Hall, and it'd be good to see him over there. Interestingly, uh, this will be the second US round 
Ireland, the two US pilots, Kirby Chambliss and uh, Mike Gullian, not having the best of seasons. And Mike Gullian, got to be the nicest guy on the circuit, really. I've met him uh, when we were at Oshkosh. A really, really great guy. And it's just, yeah. a, it's just, I really feel sorry for him. It just doesn't seem to be going right for him this time around. But um, I tell you what, the guy to watch actually at the moment is Pete McLeod, the Canadian, who we've also spoken to on this show a couple of years ago. Yeah, it's, it's really good to see. And, uh, you know, Paul Bonheim, the British guy, uh, who the champion there, who usually has things all his own way. And even Hannes Arch, the Austrian. I'll tell you what, um, they're not getting it all their own way this season. So it's great to see the Red Bull Air race back. Um, as you know, folks, we talk to Matt Hall quite often about it. I'm looking forward to catching up with him over there at Las Vegas. I think my wife's looking forward to doing a lot of shopping while we're over there in Las Vegas. <laughs> but uh, that'll be good. And uh, flying over there on a Qantas uh, A380. And as I said at the top of the show, I've never been on one. So I'm looking forward to that experience. Hope it's a good one. Um, for our American listeners, if you want to try and catch up with me while we're over there, I should have a few uh, days where I've got a little bit of time spare. Uh, we'll be in San Diego, Los Angeles, San Francisco, uh, touring around there. But yeah, really looking forward to getting across to the States. Not my first trip over there. I've been there several times before. It's going to be good. A big family holiday. And uh, yeah, as I say, looking forward to the Red Bull Air Race. So uh, tell you what, Grant, the life of an aviation podcaster, it's a tough one at times. I know. I know. It's been pretty draining, especially thrown in around our day jobs that have been doing the same thing as well. But you know, mate, the uh, other aspect to this is I find it interesting. You're going on a Qantas A380. I've booked to go to New Zealand via Virgin, but I'm going on an Air New Zealand A320. And then on the way back, I've booked to go via Emirates and I'm going on a Qantas uh, 737. It's amazing. I've got four airlines happening with two flights. Too weird, too weird. I'll tell you what, it all just becomes a bit confusing, doesn't it? Oh, yes, code shares. And it was actually cheaper to get the flight on Emirates for the same aircraft. Same with Virgin. It was slightly cheaper to get it on, on Virgin than it was to actually go with Air New Zealand or Qantas, yet it's the same physical flight. I love code shares. They're so strange. <laughs> they are very, very strange. And Grant, just like you and I, very, very strange. <laughs> well, that's all we have for you in this episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. Thanks for listening, folks. As always, we hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back very soon after our overseas trips, of course. And in the meantime, uh, Grant, uh, maybe you'll get an episode out while I'm away. You'll have to shackle some of our other team members uh, into uh, perhaps making an episode in my absence. Uh, We'll see what happens. It may also be that maybe I get megalomania and do it all myself. (laughs) Yeah, like that's going to happen. Fantastic. See you again soon, folks. Take care and fly safe. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer, Grant McCarran and ATC Ben. Full show notes for this and all our episodes are at planecrazydownunder.com. You can find us on Twitter as PCDU and on Facebook, Google+, YouTube and Vimeo. Feedback? Suggestions? Advertising inquiries? Email them through to contact at plainecrazydownunder.com or mail to Post Office Box 70, Cranbourne, Victoria, 3977, Australia. Plain Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production. Voiceover work provided by the infrequent flyer, the work experience kid we found off the street. Kind folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Thanks, folks.